This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Matches of 2017 special. I'm your host Quentin Moody and Brock. It took us 40 minutes to <laughs> start recording due to my dog wanting to do various things mm-hmm. and the Slack chat going to shit once again. So, Brock, how are you on this fine evening? I'm I'm covered in cords. I've got like one janky ass setup between two laptops. Uh, my eyes have hurt all day for some reason. Uh, shit is popping off on the internet, and I don't know what's going on. Uh, there's a lot to take in right now, Quinn. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask friends after the show what is going on because there's this a is going to come out for like two weeks. I know. <laughs> I'm going to have to find out what the hell is going on, so maybe we get more details by then, but there is a lot going on. Um, so, we did 120 to 91 on the first episode, we did 90 to 61 on part two, so here we are going to be doing 60 to 31. Brock, are you ready to get into it? I'm gonna. I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first, do you okay. mind? You can go ahead. Okay. So, uh, kicking us off here, my number 60 is the highest ranked match from this particular promotion because I didn't get to see a whole lot of them in 2017. Uh, not necessarily their fault, more of, uh, my own choices, but it's Konosuke Takashita taking on Kisuke Ishii from DDT's July 23rd show. All right, this barely missed my list. I like this match a lot, so tell me about it. So, um, I mean, this was the best match I saw in DDT in 2017, um, which sort of belies its quality, I think. Uh, it's just a really fantastic little, like, pudgy underdog taking it to a young phenom champion sort of match. Um, Kisuke Ishii's been around eight, ten years maybe at this point, uh, has accomplished some stuff in DDT and in All Japan, but is, uh, pretty, uh, easily been just a mid-card guy his entire career, and he won a uh, right to anywhere contract. Is that what those are called? Yeah, right to challenge anywhere. Right to challenge anywhere contract, uh, which give him the right to challenge anywhere <laughs> for the KOD <laughs> Openweight Championship. Uh, usually, people just cash those in as one would with the money in the bank in WWE, but sometimes people are like, hey, I'm going to challenge at this point, and they set up a title match, and that's what Ishii did here. And uh, He comes into this, gets his ass kicked a little bit until he's able to find an opening and hit a neckbreaker on the barricade of Cork and Hall, 
and uh, he really puts in some good work trying to keep a taller, stronger, faster, and just better opponent down. Younger, Younger too, yeah. Um, and he does pretty well with it, but like that Takashita, like he's he's just got something. And uh, watching these two go at it for. I think about 17 minutes, uh, which includes one hell of a lariat. Um, it was just a whole lot of fun and the best thing I saw from DDT. Um, did you happen to see the um, match with, uh, God, I don't want to butcher his name, but um, Nishimaru? Yeah. Uh, the match that, pre- not precedes this, but comes directly after this, in which the last person to hold one of these uh, right to challenge anywhere contracts cashes in. A young guy, a rookie who's had like, I think before this had had less than 40 matches, uh, but has been this like awesome little phenom, this former rugby player. And he challenges Takashita and uh, really puts a beating on him before Takashita wins. I puts did see it. A, puts him through a table off, like, off the apron. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he hits, a, I think, a power bomb off the apron through a table, and it's pretty nasty stuff. I saw it. I didn't like it as much. It was, it was a little more sloppy because um, Yoshimura, is that his name? Yeah. I think it's Naomi Yoshimura. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yoshimura is uh, a little more sloppy, uh, which is to be expected. The dude's like super green, but I mean, he did really well and it was, it was a really cool match. And if you wanted to watch those both back to back, I mean, you could make worse decisions in wrestling. All right. So my number 60 is a match that you had on your list earlier, but Zack Sabre Jr. versus Walter from PWG All-Star Weekend. Oh, I had this. Oh, okay. No, you had this higher. Excuse me. <laughs> I had that backwards. Uh, why don't you tell me about it? All right. So this is one of my favorite rivalries of the last 10 years. Actually, uh-huh. exactly 10 years at this point, because I believe the first match was in 2008. Or might have been earlier. But either way, the first match of theirs that made it online happened in 2008 mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, so since then, these two have had... Tag team matches against each other, singles matches, a briefly um, formed tag team called Zack Daddy that um, mm-hmm. had a lot of fun matches. Um, so on again, off again, rivals and tag team partners. And for the first time, this rivalry gets brought to the United States. So with Walter's newfound popularity and Zack Sabre Jr. Um, being the guy on uh-huh. the independent scene for the last two years. This was just something that meant a lot to me as a fan. And on top of that, they these two just have fantastic chemistry. Um, I haven't really been able to say it anywhere, but I think a lot of the Walter David Starr matches borrow from stuff Walter and, Z- and Zack Sabre Jr. have been doing with each other for the last 10 years. Um, and that's a lot of the smaller guy who can hit hard and can do some of the chain wrestling and technical wrestling going up against a guy who's bigger can do the chain wrestling and also hits hard. So a lot of uh big man, little man cat versus mouse stuff that mm-hmm. I believe Walter borrowed, but it's not a bad thing at all. But for me, it's just cool to see these guys who I know are really close friends. I believe Zach has said Walter's his favorite wrestler and his favorite opponent. So to see those two on PWG have this awesome match. And what makes it different in that in most of their matches, it's either been face versus face or it's either been big, bad, menacing heel Walter versus fiery, plucky baby face Zach. Here we get this refined, more egotistical, angry, cheap shotting dickhead Zach versus Walter, who's more of the comeback dominate. You got to find a way to take him down kind of guy. And I really like this new wrinkle they added to their, to their series. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's not without flaws. There's a, there's a whole bunch of Zack Sabre Jr. jumping around and grasping at straws, which is kind of a story here. Yeah. Because Zack Sabre Jr. has to find a way to get this big man um, discombobulated or weaken him somehow. Um, uh, Zack Sabre Jr. bumps like a madman on these chops. Um, Brock has talked about talk, Brock has talked a lot about Zack Sabre Jr.'s bumping and how it can bother him, and I totally get it in a lot of ways. But I believe that in this match, his weird long body flailing around and going completely overboard for Walter's chops was perfect. And you can look into it as... Zach was trying to put his friend over. You know, totally. Walter is a very close friend of his, and Zach was trying to do the absolute best he could to put him over as this absolute monster. Zach has a lot of fire. They have a whole bunch of neat sequences, including a um, jumped over leg sweep that transitions into an arm bar, or well, into a leg lock. And then once Walter gets to the ropes, Zach Sabre Jr. jumps up and stomps on his um, head. Mm. It is awesome stuff. It's sort of a flash finish when Zach goes for the European clutch and Walter goes straight to the sleeper and Zach taps out immediately. But there's a lot to love here. And as a fan of this series in particular, this meant a lot to me to see. Mm. You were you were right to bring up the fact that I'm not always a fan of the way that Zach bumps or just the way he moves in the ring with his very noodly body. But here I really enjoyed it because uh, Walter's just throwing these mean chops at him left and right. And he's uh, sending Zach... Uh, ass over tea kettle and Zach's particular brand of like weird flail heavy bumps are real conducive for those sorts of strikes as is his selling in which um, usually it's either just like he's upright and moving around and being alert or he's dead selling um, and here it really works in that it sells the idea that uh, Zach is just constantly exhausted in this huge strike battle with a man like twice his size. Um, it really sells the idea that Walter's a monster and Zach has to legitimately, like you were mentioning earlier, has to jump around in and scramble for every foothold he can get, um, before collapsing just because he's exerting so much energy to try to beat this guy. Um, I didn't love it as much as you. Clearly, I had it a little bit higher, but like, it's a really good match. All right. Um, so if you want to transition into your 59, because I know my 59, you have higher. Okay, my 59 is a match I don't think you saw at all. It's uh, Kyle Matthews taking on Gladiator Jeremiah for the Landmark Heritage Championship from Anarchy Wrestling. Um, I think I managed to see this, actually. Did you? Uh, yeah. th- this is from Tanks for the Memories, which is uh, Tanks' last show in the Landmark Arena for Anarchy Wrestling. Um. One of the best like mid-card title matches of the year, something that covers a lot of stylistic ground between high-flying and more modern striking and um, some mat wrestling. Uh, these two actually aren't as familiar with each other as you would imagine, despite being long-time standbys of the Southern indie scene. And so it's cool to sort of like uh, watch them fill each other out here in a short little match that packs a lot into a short run time. This isn't even 10 minutes long, but like it, it feels like a full ass match uh, halfway through. I forget how he does it. Uh, Gladiator Jeremiah, the former slim J as some of you might know him busts himself open hard way on his nose or maybe like on his forehead doing a dive or something, I think. Um, and it like, it kicks the intensity of the match up a few notches and makes for a really hot finishing stretch in the back half of this thing. Uh, I, I think the only reason you haven't heard about this match, if you haven't heard about it, dear listener, is that people just don't watch the Southern Indies. And I think if this thing had happened on like a random SmackDown, people would be clamoring about it. Mm. 
Yeah, this was a really fun match, too. In general, Gladiator, Jeremiah, and Combat, these both had really, really fun years in Anarchy. Yep. Um, but 59, I already mentioned that you had probably have higher, but it's Trevor Lee versus Alex Daniels from CWF Saturday Night. <laughs> yes, I have that much higher. <laughs> All right, so my 58 is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Freddie A. High from Evolve 89. Uh, I didn't have this. I didn't, oddly, I didn't like this match as much as I thought I was going to. Um, I think it's better than their match from last year. I mm. think they kind of improve on the um, ideas of Zack Sabre Jr. having this world of sport background and Fred Yehi having this real kind of gritty amateur wrestling, unorthodox approach to his wrestling. And uh-huh. I think this is where they kind of mesh the best. Um, it's kind of similar to the Gulak match that Zach had from November of last year in Evolve. In that there isn't a lot of um, striking, not a lot of rope running. And it's very much ground-heavy, ground-centric, a lot of submissions and transitions and holds. But because these two are completely different as technical wrestlers, it makes it engaging all the way through. Um, I can totally get that because maybe Yehi Zach the first time last year, there was like more of a bit of a bit more novelty to it. But I do think that last year, well. Well, I think this year, compared to last year, they just improved on those ideas, on mm. those two being so different, but having like some areas in the middle where they uh where they intersect. I don't know what it was about this one. It was like, um, was this one of the Southern Evolve shows? Uh, yeah, this happened. In, this was like Cornelia. Yeah, this happened in Georgia. Okay, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it was just like I I recall watching some of those shows and not enjoying the crowds. Um, as much as I could have, which is really just a theme regardless of where Evolve runs, I guess. Uh, and I think that might have had something to do with it, but there's something about these matches. Maybe I just, I watched them too late in the year when I was like exhausted from wrestling. They just didn't grab me the way I wanted to. Yeah, I can totally see it. And yeah, I know for a lot of people, this is probably like one of the standout sack matches mm-hmm. of Evolve this year. Well, no, I know, I know a lot of people who were like, this was like top 10 match of the year stuff. Specifically because of Fred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, what's your 58? My 58 is a match that really did grab me, and it's no surprise because it's one of my favorite guys, taking on a guy that you and I are both not terribly fond of, but it's uh, Danny Birch taking on Oni Lorcan in NXT from uh, J- June 23rd. That's when it was taped, and it aired on July the, the 19th. Yeah, this is one of the Oni Lorcan matches I did not see. Okay. Uh, I actually happen to watch every match of his that made tape this year. It's, I mean, that only comprises like 25 minutes, maybe. So it's not like it was hard, but, uh, this was definitely one of the better ones. Um, Oni is surprisingly a, uh, defensive wrestler. Um, like most people would note on his striking, his explosiveness, but I think most of the time he is reactive as opposed to active. Um, and the only times you see him getting like a big series of moves out are when he is specifically, um, reacting to and reversing something from his opponent. Uh, so he starts out here trying to turtle up, keeping his head down, trying to wait for Birch to make the first move. Uh, and Birch sees that and ensures that uh, Oni can't really start the match off on the right foot and just swamps the guy, like tries to smother him with all of his experience. But Oni Lorkin is a goddamn mountain lion and you can't keep him down. So, uh, it's not long before he bursts out and they start throwing these like chippy 
weird looking strikes at each other. Like they're, they're, they're glancing blows. They're, they're hitting each other at weird angles. Uh, at one point, Danny Birch gets busted open in the nose, like pretty bad. He's bleeding all over the place. It smears blood all over himself, all over Oni, all over the mat. And it's, it's the sort of match that is delightful in the fact that you can't tell where exactly that happened just because they're constantly doing these, these weird rough looking blows um, bumping all over the place, like bumping on their sides. It's just, it's all sorts of, it's all sorts of nasty stuff. Uh, eventually Birch puts Oni up on the top rope for an exploder suplex and Oni slips free. And after a bit of rope running, he's able to get a, or he's able to catch Birch as he's running at him and do the, um, Oh, what's his name? Do the Lance, uh, Lance Storm roll up into a half Boston crab, uh, and, uh, and a nod to his trainer. And Oni Lorcan picks up the win. One of his only wins of the year. I think this is one of like two. Uh, and it's, it's a hell of a little match. Uh, yeah. Oni really did find his calling this year. And I believe you probably have a couple matches higher, right? Yep. Yep. All right. So I believe we'll get like we'll have, like have that discussion about him when we get there. Okay. So uh, my number fifty-seven is Mark Andrews versus Mark Haskins from OTT Martinez Gaff Party Night One. I'm not sure if I saw this one. Um, this happened like in it's like March, March, right? Yeah, like March, yeah. I believe. Um, so. Other than being a really awesome match between two of the best wrestlers on the planet in front of a awesome crowd, this is literally Mark Haskins' first match back mm, since that's returning right. from injury. Mm. Um, if you recall, back in um, kind of October, yeah. Mark Haskins had to relinquish the Progress title, uh, the Smash title, um, other various championships he was holding in 2016 due to a very severe neck injury and he did not know he was ever going to wrestle again due to how long it, it, it had been building up. And this is also a Mark Haskins that has been fighting multiple injuries and things like that for years. So there was a legitimate chance that this was the last we'd see of Mark Haskins. Mm-hmm. So we get Mark Haskins back and literally his first match to happen since then. And he wrestles like he has not missed a step. It is very snappy and quick and Mark Andrews who doesn't get enough credit for how smooth he is in the ring on the mat. Yeah. Um, Mark Haskins, who's obviously one of the best, um, hybrid, some ba- like basic technical wrestling, BJJ kind of guys, um, going in wrestling right now. And they just have a match full of awesome slick mat work, great transitions and awesome closing stretch, a very receptive OTT crowd to Mark, to Mark Andrews who, isn't a regular by any means. A Mark mm. Haskins who would become a regular eventually and even become their um, NLW champion. But yeah, awesome stuff and something that meant a lot to me just to see how good Mark Haskins was in his first match back when it re- there really was a chance that he would never wrestle again. Mm-hmm. So that was an, awesome to see. An emotional thing for sure. Uh, my 57 then is the Battle of the Mats. Matt Riddle taking on Matt Tremont in a death match from Beyond Wrestling's Seven Years of Bad Luck. Uh, so a mark and a mark and a mat and a mat. <laughs> that is really funny how that worked out, huh? <laughs> did you manage to see this one? Yeah, I did. This was really fun. Yeah, this, uh, that's really the best way to describe this match. It's just a fucking hoot. It's a, it's a real fun match. Uh, Riddle, I'm pretty sure this was like Riddle's first real for, foray into hardcore wrestling outside of maybe like... Uh, the no holds barred match he had with Thatcher in 2016. He had a match with 
um, Dustin at the Evolve. Oh, Marvel that's shows. right. So, yes. yeah. One of, the many, one of the many gimmick matches he would have this year. A match I really enjoyed. But, yeah, like, this is certainly a step up from that. Um, and even though he's very inexperienced in the world of hardcore wrestling, uh, he's the kind of guy who just puts a lot of effort into a lot of the things he does. And he's in there with Matt Tremont, who is probably one of the best deathmatch guys to wrestle a non-deathmatch person in a deathmatch setting. Uh, most of the... Plunder here is related to barbed wire or some thumbtacks, but they get a lot of use out of all of that stuff. Um, most notably, at one point, Matt Tremont is slouched in the corner, and Matt Riddle runs at him, and Tremont takes a handful of thumbtacks and scatters them all over the mat, and Riddle runs on top of them, pausing in pain, uh, which allows Tremont to come and blast him with a clothesline. Um, there's a couple of like kickouts in this match where Matt's like getting tossed into a, like a table covered in barbed wire or something and his kickouts are like real weak uh which would annoy me in a different setting but here i really enjoyed it because it sells the idea that like this guy just does not what he does not know what he's getting into here and like he can he can actually sell the idea of um his inexperience with a weak kickout more so than like a forceful sort of kickout um Despite his inexperience, though, eventually he picks up the win with like this <laughs> really weird looking and brutal looking, uh, superplex through, um, I'm not sure how I would describe it. It's like a board with four, uh, uh, posts sticking up from each of the corners, like two by two posts, uh, with a bunch of barbed wire strung in between it, sort of like a small enclosed fence area of barbed wire. And, uh, uh, Riddle superplexes Tremont down into that, and it's really rough. Like Tremont's just a big guy, and 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 I mean, really, they're both big guys, and and they come down hard, and it's it's really gruesome looking, but it's it's the finish to what uh, amounted to one of my favorite death matches of the year with someone who doesn't do them at all. Uh, yeah, this was something that I remember really liking for its uniqueness and for the fact that they were able to work something where Riddle worked around this match without having to do anything too crazy uh-huh. while Tremont was still able to do his usual stuff and take wild thumbtack bumps and do whatever and bleed. And Riddle did not have to do as much as you would have expected him to. Which I thought was like a really interesting way to do it without Riddle going like full deathmatch mode. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he takes his lumps here and, mm-hmm. and like, that's, that's really like he earns the victory in the end. And that's cool to see. All right. So, my number 56 is Jimmy's versus Maximum from Dragon Gate, July 6th. Um, this was the main event of the show. Um, who's who's all in this one? Oh, uh, God. I, re- I definitely should have done that first. Um, but I know Katoka, uh, Yoshino, Doi, Big R, who that was Maximum at that point. Um, uh-huh. Ben K too, but Genki, Susumu... Uh, Kanda, you know, you know the Jimmy's. Is this the Captain's Fall match? Yes, this is the Captain's Fall match. Uh, okay, all right, continue, please. All right, so this was part of the um very short but very heated um feud between Maximum and Jimmy's, mm-hmm. which, as a Dragon Gate fan, knocked me on my ass. How mm. heated this was, um, how chippy and violent and disrespectful things got. And this is like seeing the Jimmys get act this way. Um, seeing Masada Yoshino get so worked up. Uh huh. It was a ton of fun. Um, pretty much 
the basis of the feud is that Maximum was founded by two guys who are um, Dragon Gate System, Toriyaman, T2P legends, and Masada uh-huh. Yoshino and Naruki Doi. And they found a unit where they're surrounded by all these younger guys that have like no credibility really, but they're the future of the company. Um, something like overgeneration, but much, much better in execution. <laughs> totally. Um, and they're surrounded by Katoka, Big R Shimizu, Ben K, and now Jason Lee has entered the fold. Mm-hmm. But, um, for some reason, this really annoyed the Jimmies who were questioning why Doi and Yoshino would align themselves with guys who have nothing to prove. Mm-hmm. I mean, have no, have nothing to prove nothing. They have no, Real title wins, they haven't accomplished it, so why are Doi and Yoshino wasting their time? For some reason, this really offended the Jimmies, and they especially went hard at these young guys, and the young guys feeling disrespected went especially hard back. Mm-hmm. And the culmination of this is this Captain Falls elimination match. What makes this interesting is that instead of Yoshino or Doi being the captain for the maximum team, it is Katoka, who has been taking a lot of falls. Um, which is he's he tends to do in Dragon Gate, which is part and, of his deal, it's part of his appeal, but mm, it, it works for him. And the thing with Captain's Falls is, uh, it's elimination, and then if the captain is pinned, the whole team is gone, right? Yeah, if the captain is pinned, the match is over. Yeah, the other guys can be pinned, and they can, they, and then they can get revived if another member of the opposite team gets pinned. That's right. Yeah, but the match itself is over when the captain gets pinned. So. Mm-hmm. Up until, so, so Kotoka's got a lot on his shoulders here. Yes. Kotoka has the weight of his whole unit on his shoulders. Um, the most pressure he's, he's ever had on him. So we get to this match. And up until we get to the um, September 5th um, three-way trios match, it is the throwback Dragon mm-hmm. Gate match that I had wanted all year. Mm-hmm. With just craziness. Uh, fast pace, awesome, speedy, smooth sequences, layered storytelling with who's getting pins on who and who's coming out at what number and who can counter what move and things like that that just make it awesome and rewarding to be a Dragon Gate fan. So for a while, this was my Dragon Gate match of the year. Yeah. Um, at least for two months. And Katoka gets the win over Genki Horiguchi. And the promo after is Katoka being shocked, elated, um, that he was able to pull this off. It happens in front of Korokin, which is just makes this even better, obviously. Totally. So yeah, this is just a super fun match that was the kind of thing I needed for re like re affirm like need to affirm my belief in Dragon Gate still. The um, whole were you, do you have something else to say? Yeah, it was just a match I needed during the year to reaffirm my belief in Dragon Gate as we like got closer to Kobe world. Totally, totally. Uh, the whole finishing stretch here is really great with Kotoka, uh, um, surviving everything, uh, surviving the best that the Jimmies can throw at him. And, uh, eventually he gets the upper hand with the help of Doi and Yoshino. And they're able to get this big string of moves on Genki Horiguchi, the opposing team's captain. Um, but Kotoka is the one to finish it off with the Caldera, his big double stomp off the top and, and picks up the pinfall. And, his reaction to it, like he, like he stands up immediately and goes on his tippy toes, and it, it looks like he's a cartoon character getting shocked in an old uh, Hanna Barbera cartoon, and 
afterwards he just like collapses down into the mat and starts like pounding the mat as he's like crying into uh crying into the cannabis and Doy comes over and and pats him on the back and hugs him and it's just it's a really it's a really nice um emotional moment for a guy who whose entire history in Dragon Gate really has been about being kicked out of or having his units taken from him and to and, see him and also like getting injured and really never being mm-hmm. able to enjoy something yeah, like never having like a good solid run for a while. Uh, and to see him have this like kayfabe victory was just a really cool thing. And I believe there's like, will be a long time I get to talk about Katoka this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, um, after like the Takahiro Yamamura like miracle run, so to speak. And then before like Mochizuki gets kicked into high gear with his Dreamgate run, Katoka was the best guy in Dragon Gate for a couple of months. Um, yeah. with awesome performances in every tag match, trios match, eight man tag to take their women. Katoka was on a roll. And before that, and before that, even, um, in late 2016, in that, um, last, uh, house show that I really enjoyed, I had Katoka, Doi, Yamato, um, and whoever else going up against Berserk, and mm. Katoka's best performance of his life, I still think. So Katoka was on a really, really good path before getting hurt in January of 2017. Mm. But, um, you can move on to what's your 56. My 56 is uh, another young match, another young match, another match with a young guy taking on a veteran, uh, but it doesn't go nearly so well for him. It's Bobby Guns taking on Walter and WXW's Fight Forever Tour uh, Frankfurt show on September the 30th. I like this match, but I did not know you liked it nearly this much. It was a hoot. Um, This is the third match between guns and a member of the Ringkampf team, uh, only the second to make air. Uh, but in the same way that, um, guns was sort of out of his league against Thatcher, he is totally dwarfed by Walter here. Um, and the thing with the Thatcher match was that guns is a real talented technical wrestler. So he could at least like hold his own against Thatcher on the mat. But here, like there's no way he's matching up to Walter at Walter's own game. Um, so it's just a, it's an awesome little like, uh, rat faced shit heel scrambling around for any foothold he can get against a giant vengeful baby face who wants to put the hurting on him. And I'm a sucker for that sort of a match. Um, dude just running around here looking for things to throw at Walter, trying to goad him in to throw moves that he can like dive out of the way of in the last second. That, um, that second strategy works out for him real well here as Walter chops the ring post and guns goes all in on some gruesome finger work, like probably the best finger work I've ever seen outside of like maybe C- CWF. Um, he does the best like finger breaker spot I've ever seen here. Uh, and all it does is it serves to piss off Walter who just starts swinging at him even harder. Uh, and it results in him getting murdered <laughs> with a big boot and a pile driver. And it's just a, tons of fun like um this was one of the last shows before the uh the world tag league and i think it sort of got overshadowed by all the greatness of that weekend but like this is something i strongly urge people to go out of their way for is this the last bobby guns match on your list i believe it is yes so um bobby guns had a really strong year i think um Totally did. From the 16 Carat weekend, I thought he had really fun stuff against uh, Koji Kanemoto and uh, David Starr. David Starr, and even getting knocked out by Matt Riddle. And, yeah. Uh, 
four or five seconds. You know, I thought he had a good weekend there throughout the year, having good short TV matches on shotgun. Obviously we get to the ring con feud. Um, he's able to flex, flex a little bit there too. But yeah, I thought Bobby Guns had a really strong year. Obviously he's still more of a character guy, mm-hmm. and, but I think the end ring is getting there. I think the end ring is starting to catch up. Yeah. I think he's, he's straight up one of my favorite heels in wrestling in that like he is, Completely unlikable. Yeah, there is like, nothing to like about him. Yeah, he's he's a shit. <laughs> um, all right, so number fifty-five is Katsuyori Shibata versus Haruki Goto from New Japan Pro Wrestling Wrestle Kingdom Eleven. Mm. Uh, a match that I probably should like more, but uh, for various reasons, I wasn't super hot on. Um, do you want to get into the reasons why before I start talking about the match? I think a lot of it just has to do with like where I am in. Uh, my wrestling taste these days and like how things that I used to like a couple of years ago are not doing a whole lot for me anymore. Um, I think at least in hindsight, you know, having a year of hindsight on this match now, uh, and knowing what happens to Shabbat a couple months down the line, I think that certainly has to play a factor here. Um, I don't know. And, and also like, I, I haven't liked any of the Shibata Goto matches as much as I liked the first one uh, five years ago now. So it was sort of just diminishing returns for me. Um, I thought this was probably the best match you two have had together for the fact that uh, okay, now that there's more story to go off of. Mm, um, sure. So obviously when Shibata initially comes back, Goto is one of his first programs. Maybe his first program in general. I don't remember exactly. Um, eventually they come together. Um, and form the Mayu Tag Tag Team that mm-hmm. um, they win the World Tag League in 2014. They win the tag titles at Wrestle Kingdom 9. But that team has a short life. Um, Sadly. Yeah. Really should have went on longer. But they split apart eventually due to the fact that Hiroki Goto um, is just a very, very iffy dude. And after losing to Okada at New Beginning and um, losing to Naito at New Japan Cup, he joins Chaos. And in the months following that, Shibata is not too happy. Mm. He isn't too thrilled about the fact that he had this tag team partner. I got a guy that um, he thought had his back. A guy that they thought had like put all like past issues besides them. And a guy he's known for decades. Yeah, a guy that was his teammate, a schoolmate. Um, guy that he thought, thought he could call his friend mm. then just goes and joins another stable. And keep in mind, during this, Shibata is going up against the New Japan um, second generation guys. Third generation, whatever you want to call them. Third um, generation. A third? Yeah. Okay. So we're going up against the Nagatas, Nakanishis, Kojimas, and tens of, tens of the world having awesome matches with all these guys. But where's Goto? Shibata has no one in his corner throughout this entire thing. So you can kind of understand Shibata's frustration with like, okay, you just went and joined another unit and just left me by myself. Mm. So by the time we get to Wrestle Kingdom 11, there's a lot of pent up frustration and um, brotherly anger that needs to get let out. And sometimes the best way is for brother to hash out their problems is to fight. Um, and it is a very violent and hard hitting mm. and stiff and oftentimes disgusting fight. But Whatever they need to get their emotions out, they do. Um, this is a big match for Goto for the fact that I believe this is the first time he wins a singles title on a on a Wrestle Kingdom or on a Dome show. It might be. I'm not exactly sure. Pretty sure it is. Yeah, it might be the first time he wins a singles title on a Dome show. And uh, so, yeah, 
the way he emphatically put away Shibata with a uh, GD, uh, GTR. Did, mm-hmm. my, did he introduce the GTR in this match? I'm pretty sure this was the debut, yeah. Mm-hmm. So after using the Shotenkai and other things for a long time, he introduces the GTR in this match. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go about making that uncomfortable now, seeing how Shibata is on next few months after that went. But sure. at the time, seeing this new vicious finisher introduced by Hiroki Gata to put away Shibata in emphatic fashion was really cool and an awesome end to this hard-hitting, awesome match that you were, like, used to getting from the Never title for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it there. Uh, we can move on to 55. My 55 is a match that, uh, <laughs> it's one of those matches that, like, you look at it on paper and it's like, yeah, this is something that Brock has to love. <laughs> and it's and it's a fire ant taking on Jonathan Gresham at uh, GSW's Blackjack Brawl 4. And it's a first-round match in the Independent Championship Tournament. Yeah, I knew you liked this match a lot. I liked the Walter Bobby Cunz match, and I knew you liked it nearly this much. Yeah. Um, so one thing you hear a lot from guys like me um, is the idea that all too often in wrestling, people do some sort of limb work in the beginning parts of a match, and then uh, often to, to just to kill time and not necessarily to do anything interesting with it. Um, and then later when it's convenient, when they want to kick things up into the next gear, when they want to do all sorts of cool moves, they'll just forget about that limb work or return to it after uh, after not doing it for a while just for a dramatic submission or something. Um, and usually like those complaints have, I think, some valid points. They're not always, uh, they're not always relevant, but, um, I think it comes from a place of just like deep appreciation for well-crafted, well-executed, in-depth, long-term limb work. And that's exactly what we get here. Everything in this match is directly related to Gresham going after Fire Ant's leg, trying to mitigate his explosiveness. Um, everything in this match is either Gresham specifically trying to do damage to the limb or firing it, trying to overcome the fact that his leg is hurt so badly. Uh, you get cool stuff in this, like uh, firing it, trying to go for a dive, like a tope over the ropes, but not able to get the speed he needs for it because of his bad wheel. And Gresham slides into the ring and tries to take advantage of the situation, allowing firing to just shit can him right back outside and hit a house show dive over the ropes that doesn't require him to run at all. Um, and it's like, it's a little moment, but like there's dozens of little moments in this match, something that, um, something that fleshes out a match that doesn't look like a whole lot on paper, but really, really makes my heart sing. Um, more so than anything, and we're going to have to talk about this later with a pair of matches that uh, we're going to talk about on this episode. Um, this match is one part of a multi-show story that Jonathan Gresham may or may not have even intentionally told, but it's something that I can piece together as a narrative regarding um, a strategy he picks up from a superior wrestler that he then uses throughout his time with the powerbomb.tv independent championship. And I think it's, I think it's one of the most interesting stories on the independent scene this year. I'm not exactly sure where this story is um, that you're talking about, but I can't wait to hear you piece it together later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number 54 is Zaxier Jr. versus Travis Banks from Fight Club Pro, the dream tag team invitational night three. Ah, uh, bummer. I didn't get to see this one. 
Okay, so, um, Travis Banks had three title defenses on the three shows of the Dream Tag Team Invitational. Night one with, um, was with the Will Ospreay. Night two versus Mark Haskins. After that Mark Haskins match, out comes Zack Sabre Jr. with all of his belts. And at the time, <laughs> he still has three belts. Uh, and he gets up in Travis Banks' face and puts three belts up in the air, <laughs> signifying that he wants a fourth belt. <laughs> um, and they kind of brawl and get chippy afterwards, but it, and it sounds like funny to describe it that way, but mm. the Zach as this greedy belt hunter that even on a, sh- even on a weekend about tag team wrestling, he can't put aside his greediness in love for having title belts. Bless so him. on night three of the tournament, they go up there and have a, got a phenomenal match together. Honestly, mm. a lot of, Travis Banks being able to hold his own with Zach on the mat for a while before Zach gets pissed off. Um, Travis Banks, I think, uh, I think for how short he is, it kind of works when he gets caught um, by Zach on a catching sub. Um, sure. For instance, uh, I mentioned how good the Zach Sabre Jr. ACH 450 flying triangle catch looked, but the arm bar transition transition in some kind of hammer lock and some other arm shit that Zach does to him is fucking phenomenal. Um, the way he catches him is a way that I really haven't seen done before and I lost my shit for it. And granted, it's like the biggest spot of the match, but I think they timed it and executed it almost perfectly. Not a single thing I can complain about there. I love the pace of it. I love how gradually throughout the title defenses, each one felt bigger and more dangerous than the last. Mm. Um, Osprey for arguably being the biggest, bigger star between him and Zach felt like the least of a challenge. Mark Haskins felt like more of his equal. Um, and then we get to Zach Sabre Jr. who has all these belts and you kind of feel like there's a legitimate chance that Travis Banks is going to lose because holy shit, Zach Sabre Jr. is, you know, the guy all around the world and Travis Banks survives, um, he perseveres through everything Zach throws at him, whether it be kicks and submissions on his ankle, his legs, choking him, whatever it is, Travis Banks is able to survive and overcome the onslaught that uh, Zach Sabre Jr. throws at him. And I think it's an awesome title defense, um, a great cap off to a um, very fun string of title defenses that Travis Banks had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Uh, no, he had he had one after Trent. He had one after this. I guess Trent Seven that was um, successful. But um, there was a story that Travis Banks, after uh, months and months and months of losing in Fight Club Pro, finally started winning. And I was kind of thinking that they were going with the story that he did all this and then um, got cheated out of his title. But I forgot a title defense, so forget all that theory. Um, but <laughs> a great match nonetheless, and one that could be higher if I went to, if I went back and rewatched it at any point. Okay. Uh, that was your uh, 55? 54. 54, okay. So my 54 is the match that you brought up, I believe, on our second episode. It's Kota Ibushi taking on Zack Sabre Jr. on day three of the G1 Climax. And I had this at 86. Very surprising that I had this way higher than you did. I think there's a, I think there's one of those instances like that Okada-Ishii match where I had it on my list, but you had it way higher than me. When did you have Okada-Ishii last year? God, it was like in the 60s. And I had it at like 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't like this one nearly so much, but uh, it's still an interesting story. And that's really what, what makes the difference here. Um, 
this is sort of like a, a you hit a move, I hit a move match, but it's got like a strong narrative that I really dig, and that's and that's what makes the difference. Um, both these guys are coming into the G1 Climax with something to prove. Um, Zach is still a newcomer in New Japan and has like established himself as as like a capable wrestler, a guy with a mean streak and tons of knowledge. Um, for reference, um, he did just come off of beating Tanahashi on the first night. Are you sure? Did, yes, did. Tana- Tanahashi didn't? No, Zach won that match. That's why Zach Sabre Jr. got a title shot of destruction. Okay, a big part of my notes here is that Zach lost in the first <laughs> the first night, so no, whoops, <laughs> threw that out the window. Um, but Zach is very capable here, and after defeating Tanahashi, it certainly could be argued that he can't lose and prove himself to be a fluke. He's got to keep strong here. Kota Ibushi is making his return to New Japan under his own name with this tournament, and he lost on the first night to Tetsuya Naito, uh, and so he certainly can't drop another fall either. And it brings us to this match where both these guys find that the other is just as capable as them in their specific forte. Uh, Zach can't exactly bully around Kota Ibushi on the mat, and Ibushi can't necessarily get the best of Zach in a strike exchange. And so it gets uh, more and more intense as they try to apply their trade back and forth, and it gives the sort of like my turn, your turn match structure uh, a much needed, a much needed like emotional core. They go at it for like 15 minutes. It's just teeing off on each other back and forth. And uh, I really enjoyed it. My third favorite match of the G1. All right. Um, I really enjoyed this too. I thought um, Zach's arm work was awesome here. Um, uh-huh. And I thought that played to the finish really well, where it's kind of like, a flash finish almost with Zach mm-hmm. Jr. just beating the hell out of Coda the whole time. And then Coda just lifts him up, um, somehow finds a strength in one arm to get him up for the last, for the um, last five power bomb. Um, so even if it wasn't as super dramatic as a lot of G1 finishing stretches teams tend to be, I thought they built to it well. And the way Coda put away Zach didn't seem, um, out of the realm of possibility or hurt Zach or hurt Zach's credibility. Mm hmm. Um, Moving on, my number 53 is Ember Moon versus Asuka from NXT TakeOver Brooklyn. Uh, and I have that quite high. It's going to be one of the last things we talk about on this episode. All right. So um, you can go ahead with your 53 then. My 53 is a match I believe you mentioned not terribly long ago. It's Jonathan Gresham taking on Fred Yehi in Nova Pro's 11th Dimension. I had that at... 97. Okay. So this is a, a, a feisty little follow-up to an earlier match in May in which Fred Yehi picked up the win. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, and Gresham, due to the fact that he's already dropped a fall to Fred Yehi, as well as the fact that the month before this in Nova Pro, uh, Yehi sort of roughed up his girlfriend, wife, significant other, Jordan yeah, Grace. Say, whatever. Fiance, I'm not sure. Um, they're <laughs> romantically related somehow. Uh, but, uh, Yehi buried a kick into Jordan Grace's head in pretty gruesome fashion. And it has Gresham all sorts of heated. And Yehi is, uh, what's his catchphrase? Short, pissed off and something? Yeah. Something or other. Yeah, he's not the sort of guy who's going to back down from a fight. He's always bubbling. He's always sort of aggressive. Uh, and two of the best technical wrestlers in the world being raw anchor at each other makes for an awesome match. Um, manifest in some great striking, mostly chops, and a ton of nasty limb work. Um, 
Yehi targets the back of Jonathan Gresham, and I believe Gresham goes after Yehi's arm here. There's a specific series of spots leading into a double down that is just like so good. It teases the finish of the previous match, uh, the finish of the Yehi Jordan Grace match. It features like one of the nasty, nastiest superplexes I've ever seen. Um, between two guys who aren't really all that large and it leads directly into, uh, Jonathan Gresham trying to apply the octopus stretch for like the third or fourth time in the match. He can't exactly get the torque he wants on it because of, because of his injured back. And so he just starts burying the, um, the hard part of his fist, like the, the metal, the metacarpals of his fest. I believe it's like metacarpal five, that, that bone by your pinky right there. Starts burying it into the, head and neck of Fred Yehi over and over and over and over again until the referee just calls for the bell and awards Gresham the match. Just totally vicious, totally different because these two guys are like some of the most unique wrestlers ever um, and something I wouldn't mind seeing for a third time. All right, before I open this box, um, I do want to say I think this match is fantastic. Obviously made my list. Mm. Um, I think it is like a perfect escalation of mm. their initial match. Um, you can kind of see some similarities between this and like something like Zach versus Gresham from American Rana and how they escalated their nastiness and viciousness while still uh-huh. having, um, like flawless technical wrestling and logical wrestling at its core. So, what I'm going with this is you mentioned the finish of Gresham having Gihai in the octopus and due to not being able to get the full thing, he just starts bashing his head in. Yeah. The way Gihai sells it, is uh. Ahai stays in place, slumped over, and he stays there for nearly a minute, mm-hmm. I would say, just standing there, and then he falls over. Now, Jai in general is a very animated guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, you're in big trouble catchphrase, the way he yells, yeah, 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 during a match. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, his facial expressions, seeing him live multiple times, the way he talks, um, when he's on the apron during a tag match. Mm. A very animated professional wrestler, um, very, um, big Rome level facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, I always like I always thought he was unique enough as to where he did it differently than other guys as to where I didn't feel like people were being hypocritical when they were praising Yehai's facial expressions and selling. Now he stands here for a minute after getting his head bashed in with the, with these um back fists or whatever you want to call them. Uh huh. And I'm just sitting here thinking, if anyone else did this, they would be getting absolutely killed. Sure. For being, for being like melodramatic, for being, uh, unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just something that crossed my mind during this. Like, you didn't mention that Yehai was standing there like that after the finish. So I'm asking, like, did you like it? Did it bother you? Were you fine with it? Because it really was something that I'm not calling anybody that likes as a hypocrite if you don't like, mm. um, X, Y, or Z mm. or certain, certain guys. But I do think it's funny to love Fred Yehai. And then watch this and be like, oh, yeah, that was fine. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think a big part of it for me specifically was that you had watched the match previously and had brought it up. Um, not 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 like you didn't describe it in full, but you were like, huh, that's a weird sell. And you were asking if I had seen the match and made sure that I like looked out for his selling afterwards. Um, 
And so, like, I sort of knew what I was getting into when I watched this match. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, like you sort of hit the nail on the head that, like, there's something about Yehai. There's something about his approach, his animatedness that is totally off the wall, bananas, cartoonish shit, but manages to feel rooted in something that, like, when he does something a little inhuman, and I don't mean that to be, like, evil or superhuman, but something that, like, most people wouldn't do, it feels natural to him because he's so different. So, I think you described it um, initially as, like, you kind of buy it that because he's such a weirdo and comes across as such a weirdo that you uh-huh. believe that he would react to getting knocked out yeah. differently. And like, there's, there's, maybe yeah. there's, maybe there's, like... <laughs> Maybe there's something different about him physiologically that like his, his body just reacts to things differently. And so he, he wouldn't just collapse after being knocked out. He'd just stay up, standing in this upright position. But yeah. I thought that was like something that I took away from that match. Wondering like, I mean, and if other people have seen this match, I would like to hear mm-hmm. from you. How does Fred Yehi selling in this thing compare to like Kenny Omega doing something crazy or say like the Shawn Michaels mm. people have probably seen this. Like when Shawn Michaels has, is like selling a concussion yeah. and he's going for the sweet chin music and they just collapses in the middle of the ring or, okay. or like a, or a Kensa Kobashi or a, or a David star, you know, all these, all these like super emotional, super over the top wrestlers. Like why does, why does someone like Fred Yehi get the pass? So I would very much like to hear from anybody who's seen this match in here. If they think Yehi did it differently, mm. they just don't care. Or if they actually just dislike it. And maybe I haven't heard talk to those people. It's because he wrestles in the South, Quinn. <laughs> don't sorry. That's what it is. <laughs> you already got Irish Twitter mad. Oh yeah. All right. Um, we can move on to 53, right? Yep. All right. So my 52 is a match that is very near and dear to me and will not mean nearly as much to a lot of people, but it is oh boy. the South Pacific Power Trip versus the London Riots from Progress Chapter 47. I don't recall if I watched this or not. I'm pretty sure I did. Okay. Um, the South Pacific Power Trip um, at the time were my favorite tag team act whatever in wrestling um uh-huh. it's a void that later got fulfilled by um aussie open oddly enough but um i really i really enjoy these people um i really enjoyed the act i really enjoyed the story i really enjoyed um seeing tk and dahlia succeed after um working their way up through the progress system i really enjoyed seeing travis banks get put in prominent positions after um seeing him fight Club Pro and attack, um, getting singles matches there. And they really earned this spot. They really did from uh, working that Jack Sexsmith feud to getting other stuff after that. They really started to gain the respect and love and admiration from the crowd. They were being great heels, I thought. But eventually their matches just got too good. Mm-hmm. And as something that happens in wrestling and the crowd started naturally turning them. On top of the fact that um, TK and Dahlia had addressed that their visas were going to be expiring soon. Mm. So, um, after these two have had this, uh, awesome run, uh, a match against ring comp in February, the people adored a title shot against mustache mountain at chapter 45. That was really fun going over to, um, Orlando for WrestleMania weekend, uh, and having great matches with JML and um, Doom Patrol there. Some of the most highly touted matches of the weekend. Um, arguably, other than Keith Lee, the breakout stars of the weekend. Hmm. And then when they get back to England and they get back to the Electric Ballroom, 
after after accomplishing so much in the first uh, four months of the year, they have to go. And it is very emotional having to see these two, um, TK and Dahlia specifically, have to leave mm. um, after Progress had been in their home. And it, uh, Progress was the reason they came to England. Um, they had saw Chapter 13 on YouTube and decided that um, the English wrestling scene is what they wanted to be in, and Progress in, in specific is where they wanted to be. Uh, Travis Banks had trained both of them and had been with them, both of them for a long time. So when they come out and keep it 100 plays, they get a standing ovation. Dahlia's crying. TK is very cool, but he's trying to hold back tears too. Yeah. Travis Banks watching these two in the ring. Um, he's just clapping and applauding for them as these two that used to get booed uh, vehemently for their gross PDA in the ring. <laughs> Um, the crowd is cheering on as they kiss and they're chanting for them. Um, on the opposite side is the London riots. Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of people may not know this, but, uh, James Davis is one of TK Cooper's closest friends. And in general, um, was helping, uh, run the Projo knuckle lock school, whatever it is now. So James Davis and TK are really close and London riots being the first team of progress. There's a lot going on here there. Um, as this new, hotness of a tag team versus like the old established guys. Mm. And uh it's a fun match. The um, it plays a lot it plays a lot with the crowd emotions with TK faking out like he was gonna cry and then punch and then punching James Davis or Rob Lynch in the face. Mm. Um there's a spot where Rob Lynch um gives TK an exploder off the top to the floor and T um and TK um lands very awkwardly and there is a hushed silence in that oh man if these guys got injured in their last match yeah like people were very very frightened there but tk was all right a lot of just great sequences in action here just a kind of stuff that you would expect from the south pacific power trip on their way out getting a lot of time and going all out here they get the win and then they get the soak in the adulation of the crowd um as dahlia gets the kind of promo when she can't hold back her tears anymore um, the commentary team is crying as they're getting this whole big ovation. There's a lot of emotion to take in here. You can argue that like doing the mustache mountain stuff at the end kind of takes away from it, but it does set up the fact that when they did come back later on, they mm-hmm. were getting a title shot and they did just do that just because like you can argue Gabe did with the Chris hero farewell speech. Okay. Um, they actually, other than TK, um, just very um sadly getting hurt during that match in New York. They were trying to tell some sort of story there, at least plant seeds for it. So a match that means a lot to me because it was my favorite tag team um, and people I like a lot getting to go on a high note. I miss hearing, do they still use that theme? People in progress? Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they do. Um, Dahlia and TK both still use it. Thank God, because it's, it's one of my favorite like entrances in wrestling at the moment. It's like, like that... And that theme has such a reputation mm-hmm. that there is such legitimate joy and happiness and just like overall just excitement whenever they hear it. because Travis Banks doesn't use it anymore. Yeah. And TK had been hurt since August. Yeah. So nobody had seen TK in a wrestling ring or heard that theme other than Dahlia for the last few months. And I just mm-hmm. watched unbox- um, chapter 60 um, unboxing two um, yesterday or two days ago at this point. So, when Travis Banks beats Will Ospreay out in the show, um, TK Cooper comes out 
and you just hear keep them 100. And the way they shoot it is like you see um, Travis Banks's face and you see the entranceway behind him. Mm. So all you see is Travis Banks like soaking in his victory and then keep him 100 hits. And you see his face go to complete confusion and then everybody else behind him is standing up and jumping, standing and jumping up and down like, oh my God, TK is back. Like, I love the fact that that theme in particular has such mm. a reputation that people just lose it immediately. That's a good one. Like, I, like every time I hear the drop and I watch like Dahlia slink out from behind the curtain and Travis like stomps out with his, with his, um, with his Kiwi face mask thing. Mabop. I'm, I'm forgetting the word right now. Jesus. And, and it was a flag. <laughs> it's well, no, but it's, the, it's, it's like a cut up flag. Like a, a mask um, or whatever. like a handkerchief. Like he's got yeah. it tied around his head. Mm-hmm. Um, in like a bandana. In, in a bandana. Jesus. Um, and TK like comes like bouncing out like a goblin. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, there's, there's such lively characters and they fit the theme so well. And it's just, it's so much fun to see. Uh, yeah. But even if you didn't see it, uh, yeah, it really is just like a match. that means a lot to me to get the scene and TK is back. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully nothing happens now when they get to have a real nice fulfilled run, but, uh, Hope so. you can move on to your 52. Uh, my 52 is a match that I don't think a goddamn person on the planet enjoyed as much as I did, but, uh, it was a great little match from WrestleMania weekend. It's Keith Lee taking on Ricochet from Evolve 80. Uh, actually not as high as I thought you would have it. I had it, um, I had it two spots higher before today, mm-hmm. and then I switched some things around, uh, as I was reevaluating things, but it's, I mean, it's a match I really love. It's just a quality big man versus little man match, a first time matchup, uh, between two guys who have, Tons of poise, tons of charisma, who know how to work a match to its effectiveness as opposed to like just how over it's going to be. Um, one thing I like about Ricochet is that he doesn't, in certain situations, like he's got some bad habits that I don't enjoy, but um, in certain situations, like he doesn't try to be stronger figuratively or literally than his opponents, especially his larger opponents. Uh, he often gets beat down a lot and gets tossed all over the place knowing that he can make a big comeback with his high flying. And that's, that's where he gets his heat from. Uh, and that's what he does here. Keith just launches him to the moon and launches him back. And Ricochet has to string together all of these awesome high flying moves in order to pick up the win in the end. And even though like the booking there is questionable, it was, it was just like a hell of a match that like stole the show for me. And I think was my favorite WrestleMania match or WrestleMania weekend match. Oh uh, yeah. I liked it a lot. I remember giving it four stars. So I enjoyed the hell out of it. Sure. Um, I think just, um, because of the obvious die versus Keith Lee, it got overshadowed. Totally. Um, which like, you know, it sucks, but, um, I'm kind of used to ricochet matches getting overshadowed by something else at this point. Obviously at the Osprey stuff gets, Hyped mm. up, and that's like understandable. But Ricochet mm. has a lot of shit that pe- that gets really good, and then just kind of gets forgotten. Sadly, mm-hmm. um, kind of like that Walter match that I just had on my list earlier. Very um, much so. Uh, we can move on to a match that you have a lot higher than me. It is Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Yuji Nagata from the G1 Climax. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that on our next episode, which leads me to my 51, a match that, uh, you definitely did not see, and a match I'm not sure if you would enjoy. It's Mike Quackenbush taking on Johnny Kidd for the second time at Shakara's King of Trios 2017 Day 2. Was that the third time? 
No, this is only in singles competition. This is only the second time okay. between these two. They faced off in like a couple of different tag matches over the years. All right. Uh, so this is a follow up from a match that you might recall from last year, which was uh, the last singles match of Johnny Kidd's career uh, before he went on to retire a couple weeks later in a tag match. Um, and for King of Trios this year, they came to England and they so sent the in the Wolverhampton Midlands area. The, uh, they're coming here from the Starworks warehouse, which is where fight club pro often runs. Yeah. Um, so they sent the word out to Johnny kid and we're like, Hey, you want to come back for a one-off against Quackenbush? Since the last world of sport rules match that you guys had went to a very frustrating draw. And he was like, sure, let's do it. Um, for most of the match, this is, you know, very much the same sort of thing as last time, even though it was very frustrating, very bitter draw that Mike Quackenbush still holds in his heart. Uh, he's very jovial here. These two are like cracking jokes to each other and to the crowd and to, uh, referee Bryce Rimsburg as they go through all five of these three minute rounds, a whole bunch of just high quality British grappling. Um, eventually they do make it through the, uh, time limit and, Quack is horrified <laughs> and is like, uh, no, I can't, I can't go to a, I can't go to a second time limit draw with this guy who I've never managed to beat. And he begs kid for more time. And initially it looks like kids not going to give it to him. He's like, you made me come out of retirement. You agreed to five rounds. Like that's all I'm going to give you. But after a little bit of banter back and forth, they agreed to have a, uh, a no time limit overtime period uh in which they pick up the speed tremendously and do a whole bunch of stuff that they didn't do like more high-flying oriented stuff that they didn't do throughout the original match um it's sort of the finish here it sort of falls apart because they go for a very particular fancy backslide maneuver that uh johnny kid being like 60 years old or something doesn't necessarily have the dexterity or the um flexibility to pull off anymore but up until then this was sort of like a flawless match and something that i really enjoyed a whole lot and i think i mean i don't i don't think you watched their last match last year no i didn't like it okay oh why didn't you like it um I, it was very much about the mike quackenbush um, <laughs> being the only guy that feels like doing cosplay thing and it's the fact that oh, they actually right. even, even did rounds to go along with it was like all right man <laughs> Well, this is more of the same. I'm not sure if it would hit you better or not, but I think for anybody who, who is a fan of like British style wrestling, this is, this match is a joy. All right. So, uh, that was 51, correct? Yes. All right. So my number 50, another match you might have higher. I'm not sure. Um, Kazuchika Okada versus Satoshi Kojima from the G1 Climax. Oh yeah. I have this, uh, considerably higher. All right. Um, you're number 50 then. Uh, I gotta scroll down here. 50. Oh, I scrolled right by it. Oh, it's a match from, uh, a tournament you and I have had mixed feelings about, but we've mentioned several times throughout this show. It's Tank taking on Matt Riddle in the first round of the Scenic City Invitational. Um, I like this match a lot. It is way better than I would have ever imagined, but did not make my list. So, um, Honestly, it's hard to describe why this is so stirring for me. Like, Tank has been around the scenes that I've been around in wrestling for a while and, and was certainly like a big part of like the Midwest deathmatch scene 
but it's not like he was someone I particularly loved throughout the years. I've actually had, um, sort of have a couple bones to pick with him about yeah, certain I was, things. Yeah, I was going yeah, to ask you about like, out of all the people that I've heard you mention being like instrumental to your like early wrestling fandom, I've never heard you mention Tank. So yeah, like yeah. I, that's not how I describe Tank. He is he is important to that scene, but he's not someone who means a lot specifically to me. Right. Um, certainly not like a close personal friend. Uh, I can't say that I was in the building live for this match, but uh, there was there was something about his retirement tour that like stood out to me and uh, made me feel a couple emotions, as the kids say. Um, and this match was the culmination of that. This is his last match, taking on uh, a guy who, like a year ago, he was like, "I want this to be my last match," if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's a short little thing. It's only like six minutes long, but it's this big 350 pounder who's like almost 40 years old taking on this blonde Adonis. And the two of them bouncing off of each other, doing like all these big moves, colliding over and over again, um, sort of like a, a Godzilla versus Superman kind of bout. And combined with like the emotion of Tank's retirement, it's, I don't know, it's something that really hit me in, in a way that is real memorable and makes it to a pretty cushy spot on my list. I really did enjoy this. And I thought there was something about Tank's retirement that was kind of like more gracious and, uh, not as greedy as a lot of like retirement tours tend to be. Mm. He didn't, um, obviously this went on last on the night one of, of the scenic city invitational. He won the scenic yeah. city rumble, the whole thing, um, the anarchy show with them um, against, uh, Tremont. So mm. he had big matches that he had checked off, but it didn't really feel anything that was like greedy vet stuff. And I thought mm. that was uh, very admirable. Um, so my number 49, is Will Ospreay versus Mike Bailey from the What Culture Pro Wrestling World Cup Finals Day 2. Pretty sure I watched this. I don't recall a single thing about it, Quentin. Um, for lack of a better term, this is the best banger of the year. This is <laughs> fucking awesome, athletic, flippy shit with actually awesome striking because Will Ospreay decided for some reason that he wanted to be good at it. Um, he's gotten better at it over the years. Um, last year, I guess like Kushida, I thought, I mean, playing 16 against Kushida, I thought, uh, he was pretty actively bad sometimes with his striking. Mm. Um, I thought since the Shibata match in, um, February, he has stepped it up tremendously when it came to that department. Yeah. Um, so throughout the entire year, he actually looks like he's one of the better looking strikers in wrestling. And he's going up against Mike Bailey, who has that actual background in Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. So seeing them go at each other with kicks and strikes was very entertaining to go along with their usual, um, uber athletic, um, spot fest. So there isn't a lot of story or psychology here. It is two very fun wrestlers to watch going out there and having a fun match. It isn't short. I believe it goes about like 20 something minutes. So maybe you could say it goes too long. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed every single minute of this and it has one of the nuttiest goddamn spots I've maybe ever seen with Speedball Mike Bailey's Shooting Star Meteora. Mm. One of the goddamnedest things I've ever seen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he could do it to that many people, but uh, I would love for it to be just a regular thing when he faces like uh, a Will Ospreay or Mark Andrews or someone that can like keep up with those like brand of athletic um, offense and wrestling. Is this your uh, highest ranked match from the tournament? Uh, Yes. How'd you like that tournament? 
Um, for uh, for as many things as what culture slash defiant did wrong in this existence, the fact that they actually did this tournament, yeah, um, which I believe actually was 128 people, um, had luchadors, had people from Australia, New Zealand, and other places, had people from Canada, had people from the United States, had people from Japan. Germany. They actually, yeah, Germany too. They actually went through with every single thing they said. They had good matches throughout the entire thing. More people got exposure. Mm. Um, I don't have a single bad thing to say about it. I think the fact that they actually pulled it off and uh, didn't bail out like a certain promotion that doesn't even exist anymore um, <laughs> was very. Um, it was very cool to see for a promotion that did a lot of shit wrong and that people absolutely maligned. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. I, I, I didn't necessarily like how New Japan heavy the, the finishing stretch was, um, but I guess that's the reality of the situation where you're going to be booking those guys. Mm-hmm. But, like, outside of that, like, what an impressive feat. Like, something we were clowning them about months ago, you know? And, and they, like, stuck to it and actually pulled a fucking 128-person tournament off. <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty nuts. Uh, So you're 49. My 49, chronologically, the last match I watched in 2017, um, a match that happened on uh, December the 23rd, and a real emotional match, um, something I'm not sure that we even talked about, you and I have talked about yet, though it's something I know you watched. It's uh, John Klinger defending the... WXW Unified World Wrestling title in a no-holds-barred match against Ilya Dragunov on the 17th anniversary show. I have this match higher. Okay. We're going to talk about it in a bit, and I'll move on to my number 48, which is uh, Hiromu Takahashi defending the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title against Kushida at New Japan's Sakura Genesis. All right. This is the one, so I am very excited to talk about this. (laughs) So, um... I mean, first and foremost, obviously, this is a great, like, subversion of assumptions and expectations. This is the second highest build match on the show, uh, a fairly major show. Oh, uh, yeah, this is, um, like, it does, it does nothing to do with anything about this match. But I remember, you know, in the fallout of um, Okada beating Naito at Wrestle Kingdom 12 this year, that there was a discussion about, well, how many of Okada's big houses this year were without Naito having, like, something big to do? Uh-huh. And, like... That is a fair point. And then you look at the Sakura Genesis number, which the second match on the show, well, the semi-main event of the show, was obviously this match, Hiromu Takahashi versus Kushida in the junior title match. Mm-hmm. And then the match after this, the match with the third highest billing, is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Hiroki Goto. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was, like, interesting as, an, as another way to point out, like... And they sold, out, they sold out Sumo Hall. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, sold it out. I think, like, the highest attendance for Sumo Hall for a non-G1 show in a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can go back to the match itself because this was a <laughs> watching this live, it was got well, me off my ass. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> let me tell you, Quentin, I don't think it was Okada drawing that number. It was these two boys. Because <laughs> uh, this is a uh, second highest match on the show. Uh, rematch of the hottest match at the Tokyo Dome. Fight me. I will die on that hill. Um, like Something that coming into this, you expect this to be like a long, drawn out match, uh, eagerly anticipated rematch. You think that they're going to go for a long time, but 
they come in here and they do a two minute match that is perfect. And I don't use that word a lot in wrestling, but I dare say is perfect. Like you're coming into this, you're thinking they're going to have a long match. This is already a long show because it's a major new Japan show. You know, by this point in the year, like Okada is going to be doing a 40 minute main event. So like by the time you get to this point in the show, you're exhausted. And so they send the two, like they send the hottest new guy they have out there and his, at the, at this point in time, career rival, uh, out there to do a banger of a two minute match that gets the people on your feet. You just said that it like knocked you on your ass. You're like a real eye opener of a match. It's a match that serves perfectly as the second part of a three part story in which Kushida is humiliated even more than he was at the dome. Um, specifically due to the fact that he extends himself with uh, a high-impact style that he's not necessarily used to, and Hiromu Takahashi is. And it's like they they accomplish everything they need to accomplish, and they don't waste any time in doing it. And it like it it stands out to me as like one of the best accomplishments of the year in wrestling. And it's not even two minutes long, you know. Like I yeah. I can't speak highly of this match enough. Um, another thing that just makes this match great is like the way watching it live. With people, um, in what was the wrestling with words, um, slat chat. Wrestling with friends, WWF. <laughs> um, is that people were legitimately considering, did Kushida get hurt early in the match and they called an audible? Like the fact that people yeah. were really considering, oh my God, this wasn't meant to happen, was it? So like, so at the, I think, I forget which match it is. I think it might be this one. The whole thing that like turns the tide. Um, so Kushida like jumps Hiromu before the bell and does a big dive on him. And that's, he, he's like in control when the bell actually rings. Um, and Hiromu's only able to take control once he does one of his signature moves, like the sunset flip powerbomb off the apron. Uh, when he does it, Kushida whacks his head against one of the barricades. And it's like, holy shit, did he get hurt? Or is it just like a fortuitous, a fortuitous, like, uh, happenstance that elevates this match even higher and like regardless of regardless of the answer to that question it's awesome all right so that was um 48 49 49 or what was your 48 that was my 48 48? okay um yeah. my 48 is um, a match you probably have higher than me so i uh, so yeah, i haven't heard it yet it is walter versus timothy thatcher from wxw inner circle four yeah i have that not terribly higher we're going to talk about it here in a minute and instead we're going to talk about my 47 which is david Starr taking on joey janela and an anything goes match from beyond wrestling's paying paul and I had that match at um, I don't recall watching it. One five, okay. Yeah. Uh, so this rules. <laughs> um, this is uh, at the time we thought it was the cap off of a of a feud that these two had had for a couple months at the end of uh, 2016, but has since continued into 2018. Believe it or not. Uh, this escalated the day before on the first part of this double shot that Beyond was running, uh, where Penelope Ford, uh, Joey Janelle's manager and girlfriend, had stolen the WXW Shotgun Championship from David Starr. And that's a belt that means a whole lot to young Davy Wrestling. Uh, and it set this match, uh, to a boil before it even began. Um, I love, I love my boy David in hardcore settings, uh, not just because he, he leans real hard into him and does a whole bunch of crazy shit, but because it's where his like 
dramatic, over-the-top, hammy selling, his theatrics actually feel warranted. Um, and there's a whole lot of that here, especially as he gets all sorts of gruesome things done to him. Uh, uh, they're using a whole bunch of fun plunder here from chairs to a table that's like super small. It, like uh, small enough that you're like, where the fuck did they get this? But it breaks in a, in a marvelous way. Um, they've also got cinder blocks and salt and skewers that, uh, they don't use on anyone in the match initially. Instead, David uses them on Penelope Ford in <laughs> one of the most shocking moments of the year. Uh, and pretty soon Joey's able to reverse it on star himself. Uh, when, when Janelle is trying to like hammer these skewers, these wooden spikes into Star's forehead, Star sort of shifts around. And so Janelle actually like scrapes them along the top of his scalp in a horrifying manner until they're eventually able to stick them in on the top of his head. They don't stick in as well as you'd like, but uh, to make up for the fact, Joey just pours a whole bunch of salt on top of his head in this open wound and then just starts slapping the top of his head. Um, which is not something you see a lot in wrestling, but thinking about it is disgusting. And, um, Star, like, like, you don't know what the sensation of getting an open wound slapped feels like. And so seeing Star try to come to terms with how to sell it and selling it. I think pretty well is like quite an accomplishment. Uh, in the end, he's able to survive a whole bunch of shit, including, uh, getting smothered with a plastic shopping bag. Uh, and some of the blood that's squirting out of David's head pools within the bag in another gross moment. Um, star eventually is able to just like bounce Joey's head off of the exposed brick wall of the venue and then top it off with a bridging German suplex onto, uh, a little, stack of cinder blocks and it's just they do a whole bunch of shit that like really makes me uncomfortable but i love it It, it's it's a great heated little blow off or uh what would i guess be the second to last blow off in a feud that that quietly continued throughout the rest of 2017 um how did you feel about their new year's day match i haven't seen it yet oh okay, okay okay um i really 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 um enjoy this um I think it's better than that Dave Christ um, versus David sure. Starr match. From CZW in 2016, yeah. Yeah, that was the sickness match that people really loved. I thought it is uh, more of David um, really getting into his violent and nasty side. Um, he seems like a little gremlin when he gets pissed off. <laughs> That's he great. Is, he is frightening. I love um, him. Uh, one of the standouts, obviously, like the skewers. Um but pouring salt into David Starr's open wound, uh-huh. uh, very, very, I can, I can almost feel that. Like whenever you pour alcohol over an open wound, yeah. you, you know, the burning sensation. And I just felt that immediately and it's not, in my skin. And when, you just, when you describe pouring alcohol over an open wound, we're talking about like a hangnail, mm-hmm. not like multiple stab wounds in our head. Yeah. Um, this is a awesome, violent, bloody match. Um, I like the commentary a lot on it too of man, what if Joey Janela wins? WXW mm. would hate that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're really playing out the fact that WXW would absolutely hate for Joey Janela to be representing their company because he is such a sleazy, scuzzy human being. <laughs> I believe, uh, I believe this ends up being my highest ranked Janela match of the year. Is that true for you too? Uh, 
believe the only gentleman only uh, only gentleman match to make my list. Okay, so uh, I, I find I find that interesting because I know I at least had several Janela matches on my list last year. Uh, how would you say his 2017 stacks up to his 2016? Um, I think I liked it more. Honestly, I think a lot of it really does come down come down to the fact that I think him showing up on short notice for that Bola mm. and seeing how over he got there and the quality of matches he was having in in Bola and um in all, on All Star Weekend definitely boosted his stock. Um. I thought his stuff in GCW for, for the whole year was pretty damn good. I thought the MJF um, feud in CCW was pretty well done. Um, obviously, this uh, match here with David Starr, he has the American Ronda match with Matt Riddle that I really mm-hmm. enjoyed. So, yeah, I thought it was a really, really strong year for Joey Janela. And if I had recorded the top 50 a few weeks later, he would have been higher on my list due to how strong his All-Star weekend was. Okay, okay. All right. Um, Let me scroll back up here. And What number was that? I was 47 for me. All right. My number 47 is Kasuhiko Nakajima versus Takashi Sagira from Pro Wrestling Noah on January 7th. And I didn't get to see any Noah, but this was one of those highly touted matches that I think I should have seen. <sighs> this is um, two very stiff boys hitting <laughs> each other very hard. Um, probably the hardest hitting Noah title match since Minoru Suzuki versus Takashi Sagira. From 2015, Matt's Rock likes a lot. I love it. Um, They start off slow, filling each other out. Um, After the filling out process, Nakajima gets some kicks to the chest and back of Sagira. Sagira gets pissed off, stands up, and then proceeds to punch Nakajima directly in the mouth. (laughs) And Nakajima is flat on his face, slumped over, collapsed immediately due to the punch that Sagira just hit him with. And it Good. is one of my favorite spots of the year. Um, uh, it's just pure violence and hate and stiffness, whether it be with their chops, their kicks, punches, forearms. They just bring the hate. And as someone that is, was such a really big Noah fan, I, like, I was a big Noah fan even up until like 2012, 2013. Mm. Because I love that Kenta title reign. So I'm still kind of reeling off of not being that much of a Noah fan anymore. And to see these two go out there and have a match that reminded me, you know, again, like why I still really, really love Noah was, um, was very refreshing. And after this, I really thought that we were going to be off to a good start with, uh, Nakajima's title reign. Mm-hmm. I was wrong, but that does not mean that this match was not great. Yeah. You're right. So, uh, you're 46. My number 46 is, uh, I think, the first match either of us have mentioned from this tournament that we both adored. It's Walter and Timothy Thatcher, the team of Ringkampf, taking on the Briscoe brothers, uh, or just the Briscoes. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, shit. Oh my god, I can't name the Briscoes, the Briscoe brothers right now. I've, I've, I've outed myself as a fake old school wrestling fan. Jack um, Briscoe and Gerald Briscoe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this is Ringcom versus the Briscoes from WXW's World Tag League. Um, I have the Ringcom versus Massive Product finals on my list, mm-hmm. but this and the Rottweilers match barely missed my list. Okay. Uh, so this one. Um, when the blocks were announced for the World Tag League and I saw Ringkampf 
in the same block as the Briscoes and another team we're going to talk about on our fourth episode. I was ecstatic. Uh, these are dream matches for me, and they're a couple of dream matches that delivered big time. Uh, this one being a little, I don't know, like, I think it's mechanically a whole lot better than the other match, but it doesn't hit me so emotionally, but it's still something that I adore. Um, the dynamic here is really cool with the Briscoes being an all-time great tag team. Um, obviously a pair of brothers who know each other incredibly well. Like you can't, you can't really get a better, uh, tag team fluidity than in the Briscoes. Um, but the thing is they're not so good at facing people, the size or the style of ring comp and they, and they don't know how to approach that game plan other than just blasting their way through and ring comp while they're very talented and, and probably better individually than either of the Briscoes are, are not nearly so experienced as a team. So these two go at it for 20 minutes. It feels three times as long, but isn't bloated. It doesn't get overwrought at any point. It's just two teams uh, barely able to take control of the match for short bursts at a time as everyone is just teeing off on each other. whole bunch of fun. Um, great finishing stretch with Mark trying to save Jay Briscoe from a dreaded sleeper hold, but unable to muscle his way free of Walter as Thatcher has the hold applied to Jay Briscoe. Um, like when, when I saw this announced on Twitter all those months ago, I was overjoyed and the end product of this match made me feel just the same way. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I, I thought the best combination of guys during this match was probably Timothy Thatcher and Mark Briscoe. Totally. I thought their interactions during this match were pretty fucking phenomenal. Um, I think we'll get to it during the uh, massive product ring conf match that you have higher on your list. Mm-hmm. But I do have some thoughts about um, Timothy Thatcher's uh, run during the tackle that I do want to mm-hmm. ask you about. Yes, but, we will uh, talk about that. Yeah, so... Uh, my, uh, are you going to move on to your next one? Um, did you have more to say? Yeah, uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention that it's like, it's again, it's another one of those probably not intentional things, but something that stood out to me and elevated a match for me. Uh, I've never seen Walter get blown up, and I think this match was the closest that he's ever come. Like, he's noticeably wheezing, noticeably breathing hard, and it, it really sells this match as like a massive titanic struggle between two great teams. There's a little bit of that from Thatcher too after the finish where he's like slumped over on his ass, clutching at his shoulder as, uh, as Walter tries to like knead the knots out of his shoulders. And it's, and it's, it's really cool to see like, uh, a pair of guys that I like a lot, my top two wrestlers of the year get taken to the limit by such a good team. Yeah, like it doesn't, and you do get it because, like, just if you know the Briscoes historically, they just don't ever stop moving. They are yep. <laughs> one of the more constant in and out tag mm-hmm. teams um, of the last, um, God, 15, 20 years. Yeah. 15, 20 years, maybe ever. Um, so, my number 46 is a match that I was surprised that you were not that high on. But it is Hideki Suzuki versus Yuji Okabayashi from Big Japan Pro Wrestling's Endless Survivor Show. Yeah, this was a match that, like, has me written all over it. It's two guys I like a whole lot in a promotion that I really dig, having a big style clash match. Um, but I don't know, man. There was, there was something about it. Maybe you describing it can open up uh, something new. Um, this is Hideki Suzuki after two straight matches against Daisuke Sakimoto going up against his tag team partner. Mm. And I think, interestingly enough, they expand on the ideas with Sakimoto's tag team partner that it didn't really 
um, I think, um, were able to explore fully in mm-hmm. those two Sekimoto matches. I think Hideki Suzuki comes in with a clear game plan. He is not here to hit and strike and punch and chop with Yuji Okabayashi. Mm-hmm. He'll come after his arm, and nothing is going to deter him off his path, like I thought happened in the two Sekimoto matches. Um, Yuji Okabayashi being the uh, tank, this uh, chop machine, this animated, lively, short, stout, stocky, just... He's not short. He's, he's pretty tall. Is he? Yeah, I don't think he's that much taller than Sekimoto. I, th- I think he's taller than me. He cannot be that tall. I'm pretty sure he's like six one. Yeah, I would be shocked if he is that tall. He's a big boy for Japanese standards. Um, but to see this um stocky dude who is known for just hitting as hard as he can, and that's what he that's what he's here to do. He's not here to try to wrestle with Hideki. He is not here to try to exchange holds with Hideki. He is here to hit him. So here we have two guys with clearly distinct game plans mm-hmm. going at it, and um. I think it's two very stubborn, bullheaded guys coming at it with two different approaches. And Yuji fights, and he gets the upper hand sometimes, but Hideki and his uh, thoroughness when it comes to his arm work is just phenomenal. He is rabid going after it. He takes um, Yuji's arm and then rams it into a turnbuckle, which I think is a stellar spot. Mm-hmm. Um just constantly going after it. Yuji is one of the best sellers in um, all of wrestling. Um, and his facial expressions here, um, selling the agony of Hideki just constantly trying to rip off his arm was excellent. Hideki's focus here is off the charts. I think there's the most focus he's been in the match this year. Uh, and Yuji just having that fire, that passion when he's trying to um, get out of something, when he's trying to make something work, when he's trying to come back and figure out a way out of this. Um, it's all for naught in the end because Hideki is able to get him in that octopus or, uh, I forgot whether it was like an octopus or a cobra stretch he had him in. Um, I don't recall, but whatever it is that Hideki had Yuji in Hideki, I mean, you kind of get caught off guard because you think Yuji's going to make it to the ropes. This match only goes like 13 minutes. It's not long at all. Yeah. It's not the main event. Uh huh. Um, and you think Yuji's going to make it to the ropes possibly. And he does not. And you get this tap out where it's like you don't see it at first and then you just see like the, you just hear the bell ring and see the referee waving it off. You're like, oh my God, like Hideki Suzuki really just dispatched of him that quickly. And mm-hmm. it's an impressive match for the fact that Hideki was able to beat Yuji not so easily, but was able to find a way to get him that, get him done in that quick amount of time when it, um, when the first time he faced Sekimoto, it took 30 minutes and they went up to a draw. And the other Sekimoto match went up going 20 plus minutes too. Mm. So um, that's all I have to say there. It w- I, so you touched on the fact that these guys have two just like dynamic game plans and they're coming at this from two different angles. And like on paper, that sounds great, but I don't know. In this case, I think it's, it's two great tastes that I love that don't necessarily taste great together. Um, it's, like, uh, individually, individually, I really like a Hideki Suzuki match. I really like a Yuji Okabayashi match, but I, I guess, I guess at least in a single setting, I, I've seen them have good tag matches together. In a single setting, it didn't do a whole lot for me. Um, alright, so that was 46, so you want to do your 45? My 45, uh, might be a little controversial because of what I say about one particular man, but it's still a match I really enjoyed. 
Uh, it's Katsuyori Shibata taking on Matt Riddle for the RevPro British Heavyweight Championship from RPW's High Stakes 2017. Um, this did not make my list, but I remember a lot of people when this match um, first surfaced were like, wow, this is one of their favorite riddle matches that have ever happened. Um, straight up, I think it's the best match he's ever had. Right. Uh, and it's kind of funny that, <laughs> that saying that it only clocks in at 45 for me. And, uh, considering some of the matches that I have above it, <laughs> that might be a little bit of a, a stickler for people, but like, it's the sort of thing that fixes a whole lot of my usual problems with the guy in that he doesn't have to struggle a whole bunch or his selling is a little wonky or he does a whole bunch of like spottiness or kickouts or no sells that don't mean a whole lot. But here, like here, he really has to like work for things. Um, I remember walking into this match. I wasn't sure what to expect. I was worried that Shibata wouldn't want to deal with Matt Riddle being Matt Riddle. And I wasn't sure if Matt Riddle was going to be anyone else other than Matt Riddle. But, like, they both um, found common ground together in fairly similar styles that they both they both possess, um, highlighting their differences that are not all that different if they try to keep things structured and subdued. Um, they have a match where Matt Riddle is initially frustrated with the fact he can't, like, sweep the floor with Shibata like he's usually used to doing with opponents. Um, and when he's able to get the upper hand and sort of run through his usual sorts of moves, Shibata does not take kindly to it and <laughs> lets him know in the form of some big strikes. And they continue with that sort of theme, eventually building up into a fever pitch where they're doing uh, all sorts of no-sell stuff that I usually am not a huge fan of, but I enjoy here because in a lot of ways I think this is like Riddle's um, the biggest test of his career. Like he's got matches against Chris Hero or Timothy Thatcher that are probably bigger considering that they're four major titles or against major veterans within the scene that he is most commonly found in. But here it's like Shabbat is a big name and going toe to him, go to toe to toe with him for a title is like a big test of his, of, of his medal. And, he shows up here and he doesn't come out with the victory in the end, but he really impressed me with in a lot of ways. And like, I, I still haven't seen a match that I thought was better on his end. Um, do you think Riddle's kicks here are a little bit better than they usually are in his other matches? I don't think I noted them, but the fact that I didn't specifically highlight his kicks in response to someone that I love as a kicker so much in Katsuyori Shibata would indicate that they probably were better. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. 
In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong style history, strong style story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar and Westworld. Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceFamination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Um, all right, so my number 45 match I know you have way higher than me, but uh, Walter versus David Starr from London. This is where you had the London match? I did not like it nearly as much. I mean, I'll explain why. I didn't, <laughs> okay. I, didn't, I didn't like it nearly as much as anyone, everybody else. Wow. I have to reevaluate some things, Quentin. <laughs> Not sure if we're doing a 2018 podcast. <laughs> um, wow. So that brings us to our 44, which is a match I know you and I both liked, as opposed to that one, apparently. <laughs> it's uh, Mike Quackenbush taking on Zack Sabre Jr. for the second time in the year, this time at Chikara's, uh Johnny Kidd Invitational Tournament. Uh yeah, I really really enjoyed this. I thought this improved on what they were doing um on WrestleMania weekend. But uh, you can go ahead since you have it so high. So uh, as with the last match, this begins with some playful uh, exploratory grappling. You know, both of these guys being well versed in the British style, and they have a fun little match here uh, in front of a tight, intimate little crowd in the Wrestle Factory. At one point, a fan starts chanting, "This is lovely." And I think that's a good description of what most of this match is. But as is often the case with Zach, he gets a little pissy about something that Quack does. And we're off to the races. And these two, these two start hitting each other a whole bunch, taking all sorts of little pot shots. Um, it's a little tighter than their previous match. This one being, I think, 12 minutes to the Bad Wolf matches 15 minutes. Uh, and it's notably less sloppy and a whole lot more effective with Zach eventually picking up the win with a nifty little, um, I think it's like a half and a half suplex, maybe a bridging half and a half suplex. Uh, just, I don't know. Two guys I like a whole lot, uh, who work surprisingly well together, um, being super nasty 
and doing a whole bunch of things I enjoy. Um, I really, really enjoy the um, Mike Quackenbush kind of indulging more into the nasty side than he was doing at the mm-hmm. WrestleMania match. I, um, I would say, I thought he was. I think in um, a character sense, he was caught off guard by it at WrestleMania, sure. and now that he's faced Zach before, he knows what to expect when Zach um, gets into a certain mood. So yeah, I really enjoyed it here, and I thought the finish here looked really neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so that was 44, correct? Yes. All right, my 44 is Masaki Mochizuki versus Susumu Yokosuka from Dragon Gate Gate of Destiny. Enjoyed this a fair bit, but it didn't make my list. All right, so um, Susumu Yokosuka, who's um, probably one of my favorite Dragon Gate challengers, um, up against Mochizuki, who, I mean, you could argue other than Shingo, might have, like, the best track record of Dream Gate match quality ever. Uh-huh. Um, so... In a lot of ways, this was a foolproof matchup for me, and it doesn't go super long either. And the story here is um, kind of dual limb targeting here by Mochizuki and by um, Susumu. Susumu going after Mochizuki's legs and, Susum- and Mochizuki going after um, Susumu's arm. Um, story being, obviously, Mo- Mochizuki throws a lot of kicks, so mm-hmm. Susumu's going after his legs. And Susumu's whole thing is throwing lariats, so Mochizuki's going after his arms. So it makes sense there. Um, so I, li- I really enjoy a good counter strike limb, um, limb targeting match. Uh, I thought, um, every, I thought both guys were excellent here working over their respective limbs. Uh, you can argue that because it's Dragon Gate and they have this problem of kind of dropping things towards the end to mm-hmm. have their cool finishing stretch that I can see it bothering people, but I enjoyed it because I think each guy was still selling their limb well enough while they were mm-hmm. still getting their offense in. I love the offense, and again, um, it doesn't go that long, and that's a problem that a lot of Dragon Gate fans have with these Dream Gate title defenses is that they overstay their welcome, and I don't feel like there's any wasted motion, wasted time. I don't feel like anything could have been cut off. I think they use every single bit of time that they are given here well. One thing I enjoyed about this match is uh, something you hear a lot from me in regards to Dragon Gate, and it's uh, it's it's acknowledging the story and the history between these two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Susumu's real name is Susumu Mochizuki. Is that correct? I think it might be. And when he first debuted, he used that name, um, and uh, eventually, like, came to heads with Masaki Mochizuki over the usage of the name, uh, which itself was, like, sort of the crux behind putting together the M2K stable, which is a, a very important stable in Toriyaman and Dragon Gate history. Um, these guys have been, uh, haven't been unit mates in a long while, but were unit mates many, many years ago for a very long time. And watching them, like, acknowledge in subtle little ways their, their, uh, uh, combined history was a uh, really cool thing on top of all the spots. All right. So what's your 43? My 43 was a match you mentioned uh, just a little while ago. It's Timothy Thatcher and Walter in an ambition rules match from WXW's inner circle four. All right. Not as high as I imagined you'd have it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just because I had so much stuff ahead of it that I loved even more. Uh, but this is a lovely little super fight between two friends who, uh, have some cute interactions before and after the match. But, uh, in between 
bell to bell, they are brutalizing each other. Um, Walter dominates early with his size, making good use of it to sort of uh, smother Thatcher and ensure that he can't do what he wants to do on the mat. Uh, Thatcher is able to find some openings with an ankle pick, but uh, it doesn't work for him nearly as well as he'd like. Uh, Walter hits a gruesome gut wrench suplex here that like takes my breath away every time I see it. It's disgusting stuff. Um, once Thatcher's able to continue picking away at Walter's ankle, things even up a little bit, and each of these guys are able to get uh, a TKO tease out of a back suplex and a powerbomb. But uh, eventually, Walter rushes in too quickly, and Thatcher's able to grab him and bring him down in a Fujiwara armbar for a flash finish. A flash finish. Uh, this is like, what, it's like eight minutes long, maybe? Uh, six minutes, maybe seven minutes. It's it's a short little match, and they pack a whole lot in, uh, as per ambition rules. And uh, it's a great little thing. Like you don't you don't see guys of this size doing shoot style matches all that often. And uh, you may question whether or not this is even shoot style, but uh, regardless of what what you want to call it, I think it's really good. Uh, yeah, I think match quality wise, I think it's better than anything in ambition, honestly. There isn't, doesn't, mm-hmm. there's not that much of the story stuff that, um, Timothy Thatcher had going on in the tournament itself. Yeah. As far as the action in this match, I think it's at least better than like somebody like the Jeff Cobb or Matt Riddle matches. Um, I think, look, I think, um, God, there's a nasty gut wrench suplex. Yeah, it's that so Walter gross. does to Thatcher. And the fact that I'm pointing this out, let you know how nasty this is because the torque that he gets um <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. And Thatcher's um, Thatcher's a big guy. Yeah, Thatcher is a very tall and muscular and strong dude. So the fact that Walter was able to do that to him with ease is a uh, very scary. Uh some strong um slaps here mm. and Thatcher sells them tremendously. There's a whole bunch of Thatcher just fighting and clawing and trying to find a way to survive against this big monster of a man. Mm-hmm. And um you can kinda call the finish a flash finish, um, with Thatcher come catching the sub, but uh yeah, I really enjoy everything about this and then immediately those two um getting the cold spray and um trying to help each other up. Um number forty three is a match again because you haven't seen any all Japan this year or twenty seventeen. You haven't seen it, but my number forty three is Kento Miyahara versus Suwama from uh October ninth. This was no Kento had already lost the title by this point, right? No, he had regained it at the show before. This was, oh, this okay. was after Sumo Hall. Okay. Um, so so it, so it went Kento Shuji Kento Suwama Doring. Yes. Okay. Um. So for people that may have forgotten, Kento Miyahara versus Suwama happened on 2016 All Japan's uh, Sumo Hall show. Their first Sumo Hall show in many years. Mm. Um, and a lot of people going in thought that Salama was going to win that match, and he didn't. Kento Mirahara won. Um, so now, um, over a year later, they meet, and Salama has now, uh, gotten more comfortable since returning from his Achilles injury. And Suwama is a man possessed in this match. I cannot stress this enough. 
Suwama is out for blood. He is out for this title. He is not losing to this motherfucker again. Mm. It is the most motivated I've seen Suwama in a very long time. And he is here to take something with them, whether it be Kento Miyahara's leg, the title, or in his case, he wanted both. Um, Suwama is all over his leg. Um, tremendous leg work. I'm um, working up like ankle locks. Everything you could imagine. And Kento Miyahara is selling it all tremendously. Um, I mentioned how um, in the Kai match, Kento Miyahara uh, isn't really a limb-targeting guy. So when he yeah. targeted, was targeting Kai's leg, it was a great departure from what Kento usually does. Here, Kento is selling his leg like never before. Kento is in pain. He um, Obviously, one of his big moves is the blackout knee, which is a bicycle knee strike. So working over the leg really puts him in a in a dangerous position because even if he does the move, he's gonna have a hard time covering. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, tremendous stuff from Suwama. A very hot crowd, which I was um kind of surprised to hear. Um, I believe this might have been the fullest Korokin they had this year. It, it, either this or the um, Shujishi Kawa Kento match from May, but. This match was stellar. Tremendous performances from both guys. Masuama was next level great and the most I've enjoyed a Suwama match in years. Um, not, not a fan of Suwama? No, nah, never have been a big Suwama guy. Neither have I, but it's, I like the idea of like the guy who was, who really was the ace of all Japan during a down period for a long time, uh, taking on the dude who sort of replaced him while he was injured. Was that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, because Suwama tore his Achilles. Um, he had won the title from Akebano, and then um, Suwama... Yeah, I believe that's what Suwama got hurt. Yeah, I got hurt. Okay. Um, so it took a while for Suwama to even get back in the shape, because I remember watching him last year, or in 2016. I keep saying last year, but 2017 was last year. But um, in 2016, and he had this awful match with Zeus. Um, when mm-hmm. he first came back, one of my least favorite matches that happened in 2016. Um, but yeah, and it was just really, really interesting to see him work his way back in the shape. And this match is the pinnacle of it, where he is uh, as motivated as I've ever seen to him, but have a good match. Mm. Um, so what? Uh, that was your 40, you said your 43, right? Yes. All right, so what's your 42? My 42 is a match that I initially had in my top 10 matches of the year, and it dropped significantly for me on rewatch, but I still like it a whole bunch. Second highest ranked, I think, Lucha match of the year. It's LA Park taking on Rush, or Rush, in uh, Promociones Baracal. I don't know how to say that, actually. Was on Baracal, maybe. Baracal. It's, uh, anywho, it's on March the 11th. Um... Did not make my list. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would have it on my list if it wasn't so lucha. Uh, it, is, it is a very lucha finish. Oh, it's so lucherific. I totally know what you mean. Uh, well, uh, we can uh, get to that uh, after you talk about the match. Um, so... This is a rematch from, uh, what, a couple different high-profile matches in 2016, right? Oh, oh yeah, like the three, uh, deck three. Several, uh, one of which was pretty high for the both of us, uh, which was uh, one of the most highly uh, highly touted Lucha matches of the year. Uh, this one certainly is, I think, a step down in some ways, but an improvement in other ways. Uh, it takes a while to get going, but once they get going and start throwing random objects from the crowd at each other, it is a hoot. Um 
pretty early on, Roosh takes control and busts open Elliot Park's mask and makes him bleed. Starts throwing, like, there's, like, a drink cooler or a recycling bin. It's, like, this big plastic tub of some variety. Uh, chucks it right at him. Uh, eventually, Elliot Park's able to take control with, like, the best fucking Tope Suicida you're ever going to see from, like, a 50-year-old dude who weighs this much. Um, and he finds... Like this big <laughs> crate of beer bottles from the crowd and just chucks them as hard as he can at Roosh's head in an incredible act of violence. Takes one of the broken, the broken bottlenecks and like carves away at Roosh's head with it. Um, eventually La Mascara, uh, Roosh's, one of Roosh's many partners comes out to interfere, like drags the referee out of the ring at one point and a ring at or I'm sorry, a fan at ringside is so incensed by it that he launches this soft drink, like a big, like 50, 60 ounce soft drink at La Mascara. It bounces off of him, ricochets across the ring. It passes through the ropes into the opposite set of fans. And it is hilarious to see that happen and to see like 12 different security guards run over and escort him out of the building. Um, finishing stretch here is, as you mentioned, incredibly lucha centric. Uh, L.A. Park, after his son gets involved or whatever, accidentally hits the referee at one point, and the ref gets really pissed at him and holds him back to allow Rush uh, Rush to get a cheap shot in on him. The L.A. Park is able to... Oh, no, no. What it is is uh, Roosh, instead of like hitting him, just sort of kicks L.A. Park. And because he's such a rotund guy, he just falls backward on top of the referee. And Roosh goes up to the top, goes for a big senton. L.A. Park gets out of the way, and Roosh just sentons the referee instead, um, which he sells in a hilarious fashion, but then realizes that he can then cheat. And so he rips off L.A. Park's mask and pins him. The referee sees it and counts the three, but once he realizes that uh, L.A. Park's mask has been ripped off. He reverses the decision, <laughs> totally going back on his animosity from moments before. And it's it's the goofiest thing in the world. But like in the moment, riding the the wave of the match, it's just so much fun. Um. So yeah, we get to the finish, and what happens is is um, Eho to L.A. Park comes out. Mm. Um, is that I, his son? I don't actually know how they're related. God, I believe he, I believe he has who two, knows. I believe he has two kids. Um. God, and um, who comes out for Rush? La Mascara. Uh, La Mascara. And, uh, An unmasked La Mascara. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Super funny. Yeah, there is a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it is fun. And I understand that with Rush versus Park, we're probably never going to get a clean finish. And I'm fine probably. with that. But there, it, it does go kind of crazy. Um, it's not the most lucha finish I've seen this year. Sure. Um, that goes to... um. Penta and Daga versus Rey Scorpion in um, L.A. Park. A match that did make my list, just not in the top 120. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, very, very much a lucha finish, but a match that I really, really enjoyed and almost made my list. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my 42, a match you may have higher than me. I am not sure how you feel about this one. You may have said it earlier and I missed it, but Walter versus David Starr from Beyond Wrestling Cold Brew. I have this one uh, quite a ways higher, actually. Okay. Um, I remember you saying this was your least favorite of the bunch, but uh, you haven't mm-hmm. said any of the Walter David Starr matches so far. <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty high for me, all three of them. <laughs> all right. So uh, what's your 41? The 41 is 
uh, match you made mention of just a bit ago. I'm not sure if you have it higher or not, though. It's Massive Product, the team of David Starr and Yaron Simmons, taking on a ring comp, Walter and Timothy Thatcher, from the finals of WXW's World Tag League. And I had that at 65. Oh, okay. Um, I really, yeah. For me, this was the first time in the tag league where it felt like Timothy Thatcher was actually getting some focus. And I mm. thought that this is where, like, he just turned in a fantastic performance. Um, I really love the dynamic of, uh, Massive Product. They're kind of overconfident, but, uh, very, uh, likable and endearing babyface characters up to this point. And, uh, obviously, Ringkampf having a serious edge to them, but they're also babyfaces at this point, too. And, Obviously, the big thing here is the Walter Davis star rivalry that is always bumbling, bubbling underneath, whether it be in a tag match or very outward in front in a um, single setting. But here, I think there's a lot of interactions that I really enjoy. I think the interactions between Yearn and Thatcher are really fun. I think the interactions, obviously, between Davis Star and Walter are just fireworks. The initial chop that Davis Star hits Walter with in this match in the corner is just disgusting. Mm. And Walter just looks at him like, are you, do you want to do this again? Like we keep doing this. And he is just so fed up with David Starr. And, uh, I really enjoy Timothy Thatcher selling here. I enjoy how much Yern Simmons, uh, I guess felt like a big, de- big deal, not an afterthought when he easily could have fell behind. Um, considering that this was more of a Thatcher story and you have the David Star Walter stuff going on. So Yaron could have easily felt like an afterthought, but he didn't here. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed this match. It's high on my list, not really due to the in-ring work, but I really enjoyed the moment afterwards that we can get mm-hmm. to, um, after you say what you have to say. Yeah, that's really what the thing is for me is that like, while this, this match is a lot of fun mechanically, it's, it's the emotional core that really, that really gets to me here in that it's a tale of like two, uh, sort of desperate men. Um, David Starr, as much as he's accomplished in WXW, which is a whole hell of a lot, like three shotgun title reigns, uh, one last year's world tag league and won the titles, the tag team titles with it. Um, you know, someone who's done a whole lot, like almost, almost one, um, shortcut to the top in 2017, like a guy who's done a whole lot in not a lot of time in WXW. Um, despite all that though, he's like, incredibly frustrated, almost haunted by the fact he can't defeat Walter, the guy in WXW. And it's something that kicked off in a big way in 2017 and, um, escalates here in a big way after a few months of, of, of seldom interactions. Uh, but Thatcher too, like, 2017 wasn't the first time he showed up in WXW by a long shot. It was actually like the fifth year that he, that he wandered around into Germany, but it was the year that he started doing like lengthy tours. And it was the year that he decided, Hey, I'm going to put it all on the line. I'm going to risk it all and leave my life in America behind. And I'm going to move to Essen, Germany and uh, start working in the WXW Academy. And I'm going to work there full time. And it's a big gamble for him. And uh, I'm pretty sure this set of shows might be the first one after he makes that move. Um, and if not, it's not terribly long afterwards. And watching these two guys come head to head, and they have a ton of interactions throughout this match, and they actually are the two involved in the finish. Um, watching them 
both try to accomplish these very different goals that affect them deeply and emotionally was really great. On top of that, we have uh, a couple big guys, a couple guys who can strike really well, just like going at it for uh, a significant period of time. I don't necessarily share the inclination that you have that Yaron Simmons stood out here. I think he is sort of forgotten. No, but no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying he stood out. I'm saying that it could have been way worse for him considering sure. everything else is going on. Totally, totally. Like he, I mean, he does he does play his roles and and um, well, he he adds something to certain moments in this match. Uh, the finishing stretch sees <laughs> sees massive product hit. First, a Canadian destroyer on Timothy Thatcher, something I never thought I'd see, and <laughs> and then a regular old pile driver on him. And well, which, baff- was the, which was their tag team finish of the old mm-hmm. tournament that no one kicked out of, and it'll be followed by David Starr doing a suicide dive. Yeah, trying to eliminate Walter, make sure that he couldn't get involved in the pinfall. Uh, but miraculously, Thatcher kicks out of it and has like this big fiery. Um, Sort of, sort of like an evil Hulk up where he knocks Jaren Simmons aside and slaps David Starr a whole bunch and eventually uh, applies the sleeper hold, a move that he has lost to, to Walter before and still does not have an answer for. And um, watching Starr realize he's not going to get out of this hold and to see him like close his eyes and pissed at himself start to tap out was like a really cool story for him in a year of like incredible little moments for David Starr. And this one certainly stood out as one of the best. Um, and yeah, the post match with Thatcher really felt like after a few years of working in WXW on and off, um, getting introduced as a part of ring Conf, and obviously had made a ton of connections there. People really, really enjoy having him in a seat of kind of like validation, yeah. It was really cool to see Dr. Well, Walter, right as soon as the match is over, as the bell rings, Walter runs over and is like, Tim, you, you got it. And he hands him the belt and picks him up. And, um, they cut a promo. Walter talks about like, um, the standard of excellence that Ring Comp tries to accomplish in WXW and Thatcher. Thatcher takes the microphone, apologizes for his poor German, but like speaks a few words about like the fact that this is now his home and it really brings to a close the story of him like trying to find his place in, um, in a promotion that like he bet his entire life on. And it was, it was really cool to see. All right. And that what, that was, remember was that again? 41 for me. My 41 and my 41 is Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kota Ibushi from New Japan for wrestling power struggle. Uh, watch this. You guys, you and our good friend Simon, uh, made sure that I had to watch this and I don't know. It didn't do a whole lot for me. So why don't you take it? Um, as someone that really did not love Hiroshi Tanahashi's 2017, this was mm-hmm. kind of the, um, reaffirming that need to remind me like Tanahashi is still a pretty fucking great professional wrestler. <laughs> and sometimes just everything lines up and when there's nothing else on the show that's as important as this match, Tanahashi will go out there and still give you a quality, quality main event. And going up against one of my favorite wrestlers on the planet doesn't hurt either. Um, these have had matches I've enjoyed a lot in the past. Um, one making my list earlier with their G1 Climax match. Mm. And they play off of stuff that happened in the G1 Climax. Um, 
with um Kota Ibushi's new finish to Kamaguye and other stuff that happened in uh, um in their first match with the leg work. Ibushi not being phased by it as much, and Tanahashi having to find a different way to beat Kota Ibushi, and that was kind of standing up to him, and not letting Kota Ibushi bully him around with his superior striking skills. Tanahashi, who does not have that kind of background, and has always stood up to guys even when they were quote-unquote tougher than him, mm-hmm. he stands his own here, and Tanahashi gives those slaps that, uh, I always like imagine like Tanahashi slaps it's like when someone, like like the image of someone challenging someone to a duel, when you take the glove off and slap them across the face with it, and that's like <laughs> what Tanahashi slaps um, look like to me. Totally, yeah. But I like them a lot. I like the way they look, and I like the way he does them. And the fact that he, in the face of this goddamn buzzsaw who mm. has these fast, who has this fast flurry of kicks and chops and palm strikes and stomps. One of, could, we were talking about it the other day, one of the fastest wrestlers in the world, Kota Ibushi. I've never seen someone throw a kick as fast as Kota Ibushi has. Yeah. And like, it's kind of insane how fast he is with it. And Tanahashi standing up to him is just such an awesome sight. And like, it gets to like this big, epic New Japan stuff, but like, Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi getting to have the match that I imagine so many people thought they could have, which is like a big title match. The first time Kota has had a title match in like two years. Mm. The first Kota title match in two years, and he goes out there and delivers on this level. So, like, yeah, it was really cool to see um, these two go at it and just kind of reaffirm that Tanahashi is still one of the best. And mm. um, the last big match of a, not like a, not like a, Renaissance year for Coda because Coda had a really awesome year in 2016 in the Cruiserweight Classic. But seeing him in New Japan as himself, seeing mm-hmm. him have a great G1 climax, seeing him have that mask, match versus Okada um, as Tiger Mask W, and seeing this match here in Power Struggle really put off a um, nice feather in the cap to um, a really strong Coda Ibushi year. And mm-hmm. one that, um, if he's still going to be in New Japan, he's going to be very much in contention for some top titles for a G1 Climax, for a New Japan Cup, because he's a, one of the last few guys left that has not had that big Okada title match. Uh, that was your uh, number 41, correct, Mundo? Yep. Okay, so that will segue us into a match I hyped up earlier, my number 40, that being Fred Yehai taking on Jonathan Gresham from Nova Pro's The Great Grapsy. Um, I had that at, let me scroll down a bit. I had that at, Jesus Christ, where is it? Um, 100. Okay. So this is, um, this is notably the first match that these two had in Nova Pro in 2017. It's less nasty, less, uh, aggressive than um, their second. Can I cut you off real quick? There is a lot going on on Twitter right now. <laughs> like um, what? Open the Slack chat. Um, okay. You can keep going. I just want to say that. I'll do that quickly. as I speak, Sean. Um, so th- there's like less aggression in this one, and I think this match stands off the page uh, less than their pre- uh, less than their second match, I believe. Um, and on, like honest, like in in some ways, I think it's a lesser match. Uh, I mean, it's still an incredible match. It's these two going at it on the mat for an extended period of time. Uh, totally a new, a unique thing. Totally in. Um, incredible thing to watch every time. I love to see these two wrestle and watching them play their trade together is awesome. Every time it happens, 
But the real thing for this match, um, at least in my eyes, is how it fits into this wonderful little narrative with Jonathan Gresham throughout 2017 in that, Freddie AI goes after his, his leg here and he applies a figure for a leg lock at one point. And he, uh, Jonathan Gresham tries to roll towards the ropes to try to, you know, break up the move. And Freddie AI, humoring him, rolls with him and they roll out to the apron and eventually onto the, the, uh, hard floor below of, uh, I believe it's a gymnasium in the Jewish community center. Um, and, if you have watched any independent wrestling in 2017, that's become a very popular spot, especially in regards to Jonathan Gresham. And uh, I watched this match after seeing, I think it was like three different Gresham matches in which he applied this very same move against opponents. And it took me aback. I was like, what the fuck? He copped this from somebody else? Um, but after I got over that idea, because it's fucking pro wrestling and no one owns a move, um, I was like, well, this is an interesting idea. The thought that Jonathan Gresham, who is like one of my favorite wrestlers, someone I think very highly of one of the best wrestlers in the world, regardless of his stature, um, is a lesser ranked wrestler in the grand scheme of things than someone like a Fred Yehi. Fred Yehi being like a notable evolve wrestler, one of the most, um, maybe not the most well attended, but <laughs> one of the most notable American independent promotions. And it was a really cool idea for me to see him take this move and apply it to people ranked below him in the American indie scene to try to win a series of matches, uh, in the tournament leading up to, and afterwards defending the powerbomb.tv independent championship. You see this pop up again in the, uh, the match I brought up a little earlier against fire ants in the first round of that tournament. And Jonathan Gresham, uh, doesn't apply the move as well as he should. He, um, Let's go of the hold on the floor too early, slides back in the ring around the count of six, and it allows Fire Ant to uh, re-enter the ring and break the referee's count. And uh, he doesn't have a whole lot in the tank left after that, and Jonathan Gresham wins fairly easily, but it's not as effective as it could be. A little while later, after Gresham wins the whole tournament and wins the title, he his first defense is against Flip Gordon in Beyond Wrestling and uses this move once more and keeps it applied on the floor as long as he can, uh, sliding back in the ring at the count of 9 or 19, whatever they do in Beyond, uh, and wins the match by countout, which has continued to be a theme throughout all of his Powerbomb.tv independent championship title defenses. And so, like... I guess, I guess if it shows up this much, it had to be an intentional thing, but I'm not necessarily sure if Gresham's trying to tell the story of taking a move from a better wrestler and applying it to different people that he can beat. Mm. But I thought it was like the coolest fucking story. You know, you piece it together that way. And I do think about all those matches back. That is a pretty concise story to put together, even if it's just like some kind of headcanon that it almost yeah. makes too much sense that it's like, Totally. And Gresham is a smart enough guy to work. I would not put that past him. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I'm going to compose myself. It's, there's a lot going on right now. There, there is. Um, and this number 40 is going to break Brock's heart. So oh, I, know. I, know, I know we're not going to talk about this match. Uh, oh, no. But um, my number 40 is Ilya Dragunov versus Walter from the 16 Carat. Wow. Suffice to say, I have this a lot higher. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not angry, Quentin. I'm just disappointed. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) man, like I'm thinking back to like what I'm thinking back to like how we spoke about this match like nine months ago or whatever. And like it, it is shocking to me that this is only your number 40. I will explain it when we get to part four. Of the I podcast. guess I guess you will, and I'll instead talk and go uh, talk about a match you might have higher. So we'll, we maybe will transition to something else. My number thirty nine is Timothy Thatcher defending the Evolve title against Zack Saber Junior from Evolve seventy nine. Uh, let me check. We might be getting to that in part four. Okay. Uh, so you're thirty nine instead. Uh, my number 39 is a match I'm pretty sure we don't have, but it's the Authors of Pain versus the um, versus the Revival versus DIY from NXT TakeOver Orlando. Nope, did not have this one. Uh, reviewed it for the now-defunct Wrestling With Words. Wasn't a big fan. Um, It's a lot of stuff that I really enjoy in professional wrestling when it's done. Um, This is the last Revival match before they head up to the main roster. And after this long, storied, what may go down as a classic feud with them and DIY, um, they get to go out on the Mania Weekend Takeover show. Um, And AOP is inserted here as they've been this dominant force um, Mm. since they've been introduced at NXT. And I really kind of like this uh, bitter enemies uh, turn um, allies in the moment story that we get here mm-hmm. because authors of pain are so dominant and scary and strong and formidable that Gargano and Ciampa and um, Dash and Dawson just have to work together to make this work. And we see an uneasy alliance form. They don't fully trust each other, but they have to do this to get this big bad team out of here. Um, we see things like uh, uh, got Tommaso Ciampa and I believe Dash Wilder doing the Shatter Machine. We see Johnny Gargano yes. and Scott Dawson doing the yeah. DIY finish. Does um, that have a name? The the knee strike thing? God, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not sure if it does. Never gave it, I don't think they ever gave it a name. But seeing that was a really neat and cool touch. But what makes this cool is despite this joined effort by these two teams that some people may call like two of the best tag teams ever, like Authors of Pain withstand all of it. Despite these teams working together to just down these monsters, Authors of Pain mm. cannot be took down. And I think what makes this great is that um, the Authors of Pain had beat DIY already um, at the Royal Rumble um, weekend. So DIY is the first team eliminated. So now we get this sort of one-on-one situation between Authors of Pain and the Revival, which is a match that didn't happen in NXT. Mm-hmm. So now we see the Revival, this team that had all these classic matches, these great matches with every tag team in NXT, really made the NXT tag division what it is. And then here they are facing these monsters, and you're put in a position where like they're old-school, southern, chicanery, heel bullshit cannot help them. Mm. None of this is going to work. And their backs are up against the wall, and they fight as much as they can. But in the end, the Authors of Pain take down the best tag team in NXT history, too, on top of already beating the most beloved team in NXT. Um, So, yeah, I really like the way this is booked. I I really like some of the moments 
done here, the uneasiness in the DIY Revival Alliance, and I love how AOP and Akim and Razor um, were able to withstand every bit of offense that they um, took and just kept on taking and wound up winning the match. I think it's a great bit of booking. There was, do you think this match sort of like, in my memory, the crowd sort of turns on it briefly, um, though the revival is still popular, so it's not like a total. Are you like, to, like turn on because DIY got eliminated? Yeah. Did I that think, happen, or is that just something that I made up because I'm a psycho? No, they didn't turn on. I think there's kind of a stunned silence that there's kind of like two heel tag teams in the final two. Yeah. So you have to figure out who you're supposed to root for, and, and like the. The revival is like less and less of a heel tag team as time goes on, but like they still are sort of, you know. Yeah, so like I think it was an adjustment period to yeah. losing DIY and figure out, okay, we got we got to cheer for the revival now. So I thought that was more of it than like the turning on the match itself. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, your thirty nine was Zach Zach um, Zach Thatcher, right? Yes, it was. All right. So my number thirty eight. Is the Young Bucks versus Rapungi Vice from the uh, New Japan and Long Beach uh, Night Two show? Interesting. Uh, these two teams had three matches throughout the year. I thought highly of two of them. They made it onto my list, though not in the top one twenty. This is the one I didn't get to see. Uh, yeah, you didn't see anything from these shows, right? No, I watched. I watched a couple of the big matches just to say that I watched them and didn't enjoy any of them. <laughs> um. Yeah, so this is the last match of the Young Bucks Rapungi Vice feud that you can mm. say has been going on and off for like the last two years. Um, there's a lot to take in here, so I'll say that on um, like off the bat, Young Bucks Rapungi Vice in the ring is fantastic. It continues the story of the Young Bucks changing up their game plan and working on the back. Mm-hmm. Of whatever respective Rapungi Vice member they're focusing on, whether it be Trent or Rocky, whether they're isolating Rocky um, and taking out Trent so Trent can't help him, whether they're isolating Trent and taking out Rocky so Rocky can't help, whether they're beating up the both of them, they are either way targeting the back. And something they introduced during the year was the use of the sharpshooter and constantly going for it and winning all of their matches with it. Uh, I think that was a neat touch in the year for the Young Bucks where they didn't have as many high-profile matches, but introducing a new move as their main finisher, at least in New Japan, was an awesome thing for me to see. Uh, Trent and Rocky are two of the best babyfaces in wrestling. So to watch them go against these Young Bucks are going um, destroying their backs so viciously um, is really awesome. The Young Bucks change up their offense, so they target the back... Uh, the whole more bang for your buck. Uh, they turn it into sort of like a regular Finley role. They have them in sort of like a Argentine backbreaker torture rack position and does that. So he kind of lands on, um, I believe Trent's back and then the Swanton onto his back. Uh, they also kind of lay him out differently when they do the whole Swanton, um, Rope assisted. I don't, I don't know how to describe. But you've seen them like Matt Jackson will hold the guy on yeah. the ropes, so he turned him over. Did a spontaneous onto his back. I yeah. thought that a lot of that was great. Uh, obviously the big spot that they had built to that they had teased on Twitter. Um, I mean, Dave Meltzer's dad had died. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dave Meltzer's dad had died a few days prior to the show, maybe the day before the show, and uh, on Twitter. 
Young Buck said um, they're going to dedicate a big move to Herbert Meltzer, who is Dave's dad. And uh, I'll be damned, they did the craziest Meltzer driver that will ever be done, probably. And one of the most insane spots of the year, as uh, Nick Jackson does uh, sort of a um, twisting moonsault press to the floor, springboard, whatever, as Matt Jackson has Rocky Romero set up in a tombstone position. And from the camera angle, I think it kind of hides the fact that Nick missed a little bit, for, but for whatever the fuck they were trying, I think, <laughs> that was, I think that was a really cool touch and something just you know, nice to do for Dave. Um, but yeah, the Young Bucks win. There's a lot of psychology here, some great action. The crowd is super invested, which is kind of nuts considering how loaded this show is. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, and that this went on before the main event, or there might have been one match between this and the main event. But you could argue that the main event had a lot to live up to after these guys almost stole the show. And what gets this so high is that this is the last time we see Rapongi Vicene. This is Rocky Romero's last match, really. In a lot of ways, he wrestled after this, but he's not going to be in a prominent role um, anymore. And this was where we see Trent Beretta get officially moved up to heavyweight. As um, a huge Trent fan, as someone that thinks he's more than earned it, he's been one of the best wrestlers in the world, I mm. want to say at least since 2016, and just steadily improving every year since he's been on the indies again. Um it is well earned, and I think even as soon as um when he faces Yujiro on Destruction, when he faces Kenny Omega on the Power Struggle show, you really see that trend is already proving that he can hang and that he is more than worthy of this heavyweight push. Um, the crowd you did mention the crowd. The crowd was good for this because like my biggest concern about these shows and and about matches I wanted to see in particular like this one uh was that uh the filthy Americans would ruin it. Oh no, they were super into this match almost to the point where well, that's not necessarily were, the same thing as being good, but sure. No, they were good for it. They weren't like um doing anything obnoxious, I would say. No. Okay, okay. Um and they were like a good crowd to the point where I thought the main event was going to have some time going to have some trouble getting the crowd like back invested so with even with Kenny Omega in it. Uh-huh. Um so with the young with the young bucks on that weekend, like it was going to be a hot match regardless. It was something where I think people kind of enjoyed the match and then try to like ruin it with like a whole bunch of two sweets and whatever mm. else. Um, but that was my number thirty eight. So what's yours? My thirty eight is a match that I'm not sure you enjoyed as much as uh, some of us did, uh, being one of a couple great matches over a particularly good weekend for one individual. And that's a uh, David Starr taking on Nick Gage at beyond wrestling's powerbomb.tv pregame show on, uh, November the 26th. I never got around to watching it. You never did. Did you? Okay. Uh, we'll talk about the other, one of the other matches that Nick Gage had this weekend, uh, had that weekend a little while later. Uh, but this one, um, more than anything, more than just being another very good uh, David Starr hardcore match, more than just being uh, a really good Nick Gage match, of which there were many in 2017, I think this is a match that's sort of emblematic of who David Starr became in 2017. Um, David played multiple different roles in multiple different promotions around the world, went on a, uh, a lengthy losing streak in CZW, uh, where he came up and it told an interesting story there, uh, sort of 
had a lot of his success in WXW, but continued to be frustrated by his multiple losses to Walter, something that consumed him and ended a relationship or two that he had. Um, did some less notable things in, in elsewhere in Europe, but had some good matches. Uh, was actually a heel in AAW throughout most of the year, having a delightful little feud with my man, Eddie Kingston. And in Beyond Wrestling... He vanquished a demon for a short little while in Joey Janela and sort of, in a way, became the ace of the company, something that's uh, very central to the booking and the narratives inside Beyond Wrestling, being that they don't have any titles in the promotion. Um, and despite the fact that he wasn't there as often as other people or or maybe wasn't always in the main events, he was a guy who became... I think you could argue the most important person in the company. And he especially established that in the back half of the year, uh, especially leading into 2018. And this, this match was a big part of it. He specifically requested this match and, uh, a couple weeks uh, later, uh, requested a match with Walter, his first Walter match on American soil. Um, Sort of a curious thing because both of those were in advance of uh, the Joey Janela match on New Year's that we've that we've uh, brought up before, and it's it's sort of I don't know it, it's it's hard to discern what exactly David was going for with there. Maybe he just wanted to you know uh, accomplish some things against some high profile opponents, one of which he'd never faced before, one of which he's very familiar with. Maybe here in this match, he wanted to toughen himself up in advance of facing Walter one more time uh, in a new setting where he might have the home field advantage. Um, maybe he just wanted to, you know, get the demon in him after, um, after announcing that he was going to face off against Joey Janela on New Year's. Regardless of his intentions, he comes into here with a bone to pick, and the king is always going to put 100% into all of his matches, and they have a nasty little hardcore match here. Um, they make good use of some mundane objects, you know, your chairs, your your, your barbed wire, your things like that. Uh, they get a whole lot out of those. Um, they... they, they uh, nastify is that a word <laughs> they make even more nasty some uh some usual moves in these men's uh these men's repertoire uh most notably the cherry mint ddt that david star does on nick gage is horrifying in its in its brutality um eventually david rips off with his bare hands and he's wearing just his normal trunks in this match in this barbed wire madness match. Um, he rips off some barbed wire with his bare hands from a board and wraps it around Nick Gage's head and locks him in a guillotine choke, uh, with his bare flesh wrapped around the man's neck and just chokes him out. Um, and it's a real gruesome little finish afterwards. He's still hot about it. And Nick Gage, as you can imagine, is also like always confrontational and they get in a little spat that I'm not sure was kayfabe. It felt really real. And regardless of whether or not it was, it was incredibly uncomfortable, but like I couldn't look away. And I think that's, that's the sign of good quality wrestling. Um, for, for I'm just kind of curious. Was that your favorite David Star, I guess, sort of hardcore match you've seen? Um, see, favorite is an interesting question because, like, I think due to the fact that Gage is a better wrestler than Janela, I'd have this above the Janela match we talked about a little while ago. But like that one, I probably like more. Okay. Um. All right. So my number thirty-seven. 
It is a match I really have no clue how you feel about. But it is Tyler Bate versus Pete Dunne from the United Kingdom Championship Tournament. Um, oh, from the tournament. Uh, okay, I did not have this on my list. Um, for a while, I wasn't sure where I would place this since I had uh, liked this significantly less than a lot of people. Mm. I like it significantly less than their match from Chicago. Um, I like it less than their match from NXT TV to end December. But with all that being said, this is still a fantastic match and really sets the tone for the rest of the year for both of these guys. Um, caps off a really strong story told with Pete Dunne throughout the entire tournament, with him being just this evil, opportunistic son of a bitch that would take any opportunity he could to get an advantage going into his next match. Um, he did that against Sam Radwell. He um, he didn't need to really he didn't need to do that for Mark Andrews considering how familiar familiar they are with each other. Um, but going into the final, he attacked Tyler Bate um, after his match with Wolfgang, um, targeting his shoulder. So both guys come in. Pete Dunn, cocky, arrogant, swaggering around, smirking that he was able to wound this guy, and then Tyler Bate comes in holding his shoulder. And the way they work it is Tyler Bate is apprehensive. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do exactly because Pete Dunne did this to him. Pete Dunne has uh, ran through everybody in the tournament and hasn't really faced too much trouble. So here we are in the final, and Tyler Bate pulls off this superhuman-esque match of survival mm. where despite all of Pete Dunne's gruesome tactics, despite his nasty arm work, despite how much he stomps on his fingers, despite how much he bites them, despite how much he stomps on his arm, Tyler Bate is able to survive it all and keep fighting. Um, there's a lot of great action here, but it really is the story of these two young guys just going out there and leaving it all out there to be the inaugural champion for this new title. This represents this scene that they are very integral in making popular and making and building to where it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyler winds up winning, and it's a fantastic moment. Uh, I've watched Tyler for like three years now at this point, or two, it was three or four years at this point. I believe it was more three mm. when, at the time this match happened. Okay, so I was just beyond excited for him, especially when we consider the fact that going into the show or going into the tournament, Tyler Bate was really not at this point where people think he is now. Yeah. He was very much the third man in British Strong Style. Um, when the stable initially formed, he was the one that was turned on and kicked out because the guys with the biggest star power were Pete Dunne and Trent Seven. Um, Hilarious to think about. <laughs> star power, Trent Seven. He was, he, at the time, he was way bigger than Tyler Bate. Um, I guess. So eventually, Tyler Bate does come into the fold, but he's clearly the third man. And then we get to the UK tourney. British Strong Style is still very young into its existence. Mm-hmm. And Tyler Bate, um, in the tournament with his other um, teammates in it, does seem like the third best guy, or third likeliest option to win. Yeah. Um, you could, we, uh, thought, we thought he wasn't going to get past Wolfgang. Yeah, you could say he wasn't going to get past Wolfgang, but Jordan Devlin and the whole Finn Balor thing could argue that Jordan Devlin might have made it ahead of him. So there were a lot of factors going up against Tyler Bate. And then Tyler Bate had this fantastic, almost sort of miracle run where he just kept overcoming and succumbing, um, I mean, overcoming and surpassing mm-hmm. everything that was thrown in front of him. 
And I love Pete Dunne's uh, reaction after losing. He is very clearly upset that after everything that he had did to get ahead, it still didn't work. But yeah, I just love everything about it. I think the post-match is great. And even if the UK title itself wasn't really important in WWE this year, this was important um, setting up for what the years would be for Tyler Bate and Pete Dunne taking that next mm. step into superstardom. This match was like, uh, I think I talked about on the last episode we did how I uh, listened to two of my friends react to watching the show on a Facebook live call. <laughs> and I didn't actually watch this for a long while. Um, I didn't watch the show until I want to say like August and I didn't review this match initially. Uh, it didn't hit me in a great way. Um, certainly not as much as the NXT takeover match that I enjoyed quite a bit. And we'll talk about later. Um, and I thought it was just sort of like, an awkward match in which they fumble through a lot of simple things. Like the first lockup they do here is weird. Uh, bait attempts like a, what's it called? The fake out punch, like bop and bang. Yeah. Bop and bang. So he attempts, he attempts that like super early at a point in the match where like it wouldn't work, especially against, against a guy like Dunn. Uh, and that stood out to me, but like even with, even with a whole bunch of like, um, I think cold feet from two young men in a very, in a very big position that they had never been on before. I think these two guys are talented enough to like sleepwalk to a good match. And like, it didn't make my list, but it's, it's better than I thought it was the first time. Um, I actually, it's, it, it took me a long time to review it. I didn't review it until like December 29th or some shit, but, uh, got around to it and it's, it's a quality match. All right. So that was my 37. What's yours? My 37. Is, uh, I, no, I think this is your second favorite tag match of the year. It's Massive Product, the team of David Starr and Jern Simmons, taking on, uh, the initial ring camp team of Walter and Axel Dieter Jr. from WXW's Dead End 16. Um, I am very pleasantly surprised that this major list, especially so highly, after I think mm. the first time you watched it, you weren't super into it. Yeah, it didn't hit me the first time well. But, um, I do have this higher and we will talk about it on the next part. Okay, so I'll then transition into my 36 that I think you said wasn't on your list, but we've mentioned it a couple times. It's Timothy Thatcher taking off, uh, taking on his boy Jeff Cobb in the semifinals of Ambition 8. Um, what message did you say again? Uh, Thatcher versus Cobb from Ambition. I have this higher. Oh, do you now? Jesus. All right, so let's talk about your 36. My number 36 is a match that you have higher, and it's also Timothy Thatcher, is Timothy Thatcher versus Daniel Makabe from 321 Wrestling. Yeah, I have this uh, stupid high, as the kids say. So we're just being right through here. Uh, my 35 is a match I just referenced. Almost certain you're going to have it well above me. Tyler Bate and Peter Dunn from uh, NXT TakeOver Chicago. Yep, that'll be the next part. Um, just blazing through. We just we blaze through the 30s and never talk about a single match. <laughs> um, I know you don't have this match on your list since I liked it way more than anybody else, but it's Pete Dunn versus Eddie Dennis from Progress Chapter 52. Ah, oh, yes, this was this was a match you were clamoring about, and uh, I had I think I'd I'm not sure if I saw this before you or not. No, I told you to watch it. Okay, but um, you had told me to watch it after I had already watched it, and I was like, it it didn't stand out to me in a big way, and I went back, and it it still didn't hit me in the way I think it hit you, so uh, why don't you explain some things to me and the people? Oh, right. For a lot of context, Pete Dunn and Eddie Dennis have known each other for a very long time, Um, both um, sort of a... 
I don't think Eddie Dennis is a co-owner of it, but he's very close to that Defend Indie Wrestling group that involves um, Pete Dunne and Mark Andrews. Um, obviously, if you know the history of Pete Dunne and Mark Andrews, they've known, Mark Andrews, they've known each other for more than 10 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Eddie Dennis has been right there for a lot of it. Uh, so, Pete Dunne on this new heel run has not really interacted with Eddie Dennis that much. And when they come in, Eddie Dennis is just kind of staring at his friend like... What the fuck, dude? Like, you're a dick. Like, you're disrespectful. You're dismissive. You take cheap shots. You attack people from behind. Try to end careers. Like, this isn't the son I raised you to be. Pretty much. Um, and then Eddie Dennis has the defend indie wrestling flag wrapped around around him. And Pete Dunn, in a very cool bit of symbolism, at least for me, takes the defend indie wrestling flag and stomps on it, kind of symbolizing where he is right now and disrespecting this thing he helped build. Another bit of context. This was Eddie Dennis's, um, one of his uh, first matches mm-hmm. post that whole going all in with wrestling, quitting his job as a teacher. So he mm-hmm. is a full-time professional wrestler at this point, and he gets to have a non-title match up against Pete Dunn. So you have these two real-life close friends who they're presenting as drifted away um, due to personality shifts on screen, in one man's biggest match of his career up to this point. Um, this also is, this also is in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, where Pete Dunn is from and where the whole defend indie wrestling crew kind of is part of their home. So we have this and these two just kind of go out there and just have, if it, there wasn't so much backstory, it would just be like a banger or a match. It's a whole bunch of action. It's a whole bunch mm. of neat reversals and, Great forearm strikes. Eddie Dennis is one of the only people that can like go power for power with Pete Dunn when it comes to how hard he throws a forearm. Um, if you've seen Pete Dunn wrestle this year, you've seen that he started doing this easy spot where he'll lean into a forearm, egg somebody to hit him, and mm. then he'll hit one of his own and like knock somebody back into a corner. Which sort of works better, I think, with Dennis because he's a bigger guy. Mm-hmm. So he does it to Dennis. Dennis gets up and blasts Pete Dunn with a forearm of his own. Yeah. Showing Pete Dunn that he is not backing down here and that he just can't bully him around. Um, there's a lot of sort of WWE chicanery that goes on here. A lot of low blows, ref bumps, Pete Dunn pulling out a sledgehammer. But a lot of it is just Eddie Dennis overcoming and people buying into Eddie Dennis despite all this bullshit that Pete Dunn is throwing at him, despite the fact that Pete Dunn is a tremendous wrestler in his own right. Eddie Dennis survives it all because he just wants to prove that he belongs on this stage. And he comes up short. He loses. Pete Dunn and his, uh, his dickhead tendencies went out again. But you leave that match thinking, oh, my God, if Eddie Dennis was, like, around mm. in this stage in May, maybe he would have won Super Strong Style. Or you leave that match thinking, man, Maybe Eddie Dennis is the next Progress World Champion if Travis Banks loses. Or maybe he's going to be the next winner of Super Strong Style. Whatever it was, you believed in Eddie Dennis following this match. And this is part of the reason why um, when they turned him heel a few months later, yeah. and gave him that title match versus Travis Banks, it wasn't that out of left field. Because you have something that backs up the quality that he can deliver in the ring and make people buy into him. And this was sort of the match that made people think that Eddie Dennis should be somewhere in the top of the card for progress and maybe even in other places. Because my problem with Eddie Dennis for a long time is that he has all the talent in the world, 
the size, the athleticism, the personality, the charisma, the likability. He has everything you could probably ask for in a professional wrestler, but he was fucking around. It wasn't yeah. a job for him. It was a hobby at that point. And now he has to go all in with wrestling. And it's not to say that he still can't be funny and do comedy, but now that he has to take it seriously and understand that he has a different role to fulfill. Now that this is a full-time job, he has to make people buy into him as a top level guy. If he wants to make more money and do more things in wrestling, make people want to fly him out, make people want to take him places that he has to step it up in the ring. And this was where Eddie Dennis, other than that Mark Andrews match, I think from God chapter God, what chapter was it? Oh, like years ago. Years ago. It was a singles match against Mark yeah. Andrews from like chapter 16, maybe. Other yeah, it was 2015, that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The beginning of 2015, it was like the same show as the first Will Ospreay Jimmy Havoc match. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, this is the best match Eddie Dennis has had since then. Mm. And yeah, I think there's a lot going on into it backstory wise that adds to it for me. But seeing how Eddie Dennis has progressed since then, I think it warrants why this match should be so high. Because it has shaped up the rest of his year. Like it doesn't. You make a you make a very good argument here for a match that just doesn't affect me emotionally. But like, it does. It is interesting how it does play into like a heel turn, despite this being such a big babyface match for him. Um. All right. So that was my thirty-five. So what is your? <laughs> was it? <laughs> like we skipped through so many, so many numbers. I don't know where we're at anymore. Um. So my thirty-four is a match that you and I were both very excited about, but I haven't heard you talk about much. Um, I think this is like my second favorite tag match of the year. It's Doom Patrol, Chris Dickinson and Jaka, taking on the super team of Jonathan Gresham and Zack Sabre Jr. from Beyond Wrestling's Feeling, Minnesota. I enjoyed this match a lot, but it didn't hit me nearly the same way it hit you. So mm, yeah. talk about it first. So, um... When I first watched this match, I jokingly compared it to 4-20-1991, which is a six-man tag team match between uh, Jumbo Saruta's army and the Super Generation army, uh, one of the greatest matches of all time, certainly I think the best six-man tag ever, um, one of my favorite matches ever. Uh, and I did that like jokingly, but like I think this match has some <laughs> interesting similarities to that match uh, in that it's mostly related to the animosity between two central figures and in the process of going through this tag match with four very talented individuals, the two non-combatants sort of get dragged in and get real aggressive themselves. Um, most of this stems from a little feud that Jonathan Gresham had with Chris Dickinson over the spring uh, in which they just had a couple of matches and got underneath each other's skin and Dickinson assaulted Jordan, uh, Jordan Grace, Jonathan Gresham's significant other, which is, I guess, something that's happened several times this year. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, but it all builds up to this big match where Jonathan Gresham specifically asked his friend Zach Sabre Jr., uh, someone he's had a storied history with over the last couple of years, including in Beyond. Uh, he asked Zach to enter this match instead of Grace, uh, which led to a match between Gresham, Gresham and Grace after this, which I thought was also very good. Um, but here we just get four heated, four hot-headed, four very talented um, four very uh, snappy guys 
going at it for a lengthy period of time and doing everything they can to hurt each other. Um, it's, it's nothing like inventive. It's nothing altogether impressive, I think, but it's, it's a foolproof matchup, I think. And something that like, I didn't hear anybody talking about, despite the fact that it was a pretty high, uh, high profile dream match, quote unquote. Um, I really like the Dickinson, um, Russian story they tell here. Mm-hmm. But I think the action in the match was kind of underwhelming for how, like, on paper it sounded. I hear you. It was, like, dream team of Gresham and Zach. Like, oh, my God, like, if I can make a tag team, it's probably Gresham and Zach Sabre Jr. Totally. So, and I wasn't going to say that this match was disappointing. Yeah. But I think there probably wasn't as much, like, a, I don't know. There wasn't much friction between Zach and Gresham, as you might think, considering mm-hmm. how their stuff, how their stuff and beyond ended. Mm-hmm. Maybe Zach gets annoyed that Gresham is so hot-headed. Sure. Um, I think there was an interesting dynamic here in that people with tempers like Zaka, um, Jaka and, um, Zach Saber Jr. have to play the cool guys here. Yeah. Um, but everybody in here has a pretty good combination. Like, I'm kind of surprised a Chris Dickinson versus Zack Sabre Jr. match hasn't happened yet. Mm. But they interact a little bit here and probably be pretty solid. Mm. Obviously, we know that Zack Sabre Jr. and Jaka have freaked some pretty damn good chemistry. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed the match, but I don't think it hit that level, um, I guess, for like my excitement of having like Zack and Gresham finally teaming. And I'm not a big yeah. Doom Patrol guy either. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I think if, it, if this was like... Zach and Gresham versus like Thatcher and Walter, like shit. Well, that's almost not fair. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but like even like Chosen Bros, like if, even if it was like yeah. Jeff Cobb and Matt Riddle versus Zach and Gresham, like I'd be much more excited or into it. Even like um, Zach and Gresham versus uh, Zach Gibson and James Drake, I'd be way mm. more into it. So it's not even just like the best tag team in the world. It's like sure. other teams that I do enjoy, but not on that same level. But I think the, my thing. I think the thing is that sets it apart for me is is the fact that like I was so invested in this story uh being co-opted and beyond um and it it's to compare it once again to 42091 it's it's not a match that needs your investment into those stories it's not a match that that um needs you to know the history between Zach and Gresham it doesn't need you to know the the recent history behind um Dickinson and Gresham, but it's a match that benefits greatly from all those moving parts. And I understand what you're saying that maybe it didn't use those moving parts as efficiently or as effectively as it could. Uh, but for me, I, I think it was pretty okay. Um, all right. So my number 34 is a match that you do. I don't think you had in your list, uh, partially because you just hate one of the guys involved, but it is, uh, Will Ospreay versus Kushida from the New Japan Pro Wrestling Best of the Super Juniors Final. Um, I definitely watched this. I think, I think this was one of my many joke reviews in which I said, uh, Will Ospreay looked like he had tuberculosis during this match. Um, which is an indication that I didn't enjoy it very much. Um, so, uh, I guess the best way to describe this match is, uh, he has a, Osprey has a Shibata match in February, but he really, where he really gets to show off, um, mm-hmm. his variety of being able to work a guy like Shibata who isn't going to do all the athletic shit that Will Osprey likes to do. 
uh-huh. have to tone it down. And granted, Kushida is very much someone who will indulge in all of that high-flying athletic shit and narrate a lot of it in this match. But there is a lot of really fun chain wrestling. I really enjoy Will Ospreay and Kushida on the mat together. I think Will Ospreay is deceptively good on the mat. He isn't perfect. He isn't like one among the best. But uh-huh. I think he has a smoothness that is kind of undeniable in that aspect. Um, he's better. I mean, he's he's better than a lot of high flyers would be. Yeah. Um. Other than someone like obviously like Ricochet or Seidel, I would say. But yeah. Yeah, like Seidel too. Um. But there aren't that many high flying guys that are better on the mat than Osprey. Um. Mark Andrews too. Sure. But um. I like the I like the chain wrestling we get here. I like when they get up in each other's faces, and this more resembles a never a title match than a junior title match. Will Osprey has some great kicks here um, to Kushida's chest, and then we get to Kushida going after Osprey's arm. Um, actually, here before I get to the arm work, is that in a throwback to Will Osprey versus Taguchi from the Best of the Super Juniors Finals in 2016, where Taguchi worked over Osprey's leg. Kushida initially is targeting Will Ospreay's leg. Mm. Um, and Ospreay never really gets his leg worked over like that. So in this setting against this guy, it was very clear that Kushida was trying something else that he saw that worked mm. in another match. So he eventually moves on from the leg work and then goes back to his usual arm attacks. And Kushida is one of the best at going after a limb and totally. staying on it and just hounding it. And I think Will Ospreay, uh, he's one of my favorite sell- sellers in wrestling, especially when he's getting his arm ripped off the way sure. he usually goes for it. So I think they just mesh really well there. But I think, I think what makes it for a lot of people is that these two are so familiar with each other. They face each other so much that Kushida has to win with his new move to be able to put Will away. Oh, he the, um, the back, back to the future. future. Hmm. He can't get it done with the hoverboard lock because he has faced Osprey so damn much, hmm. and Osprey is just not going to lose to it. And Kushida is like, okay, how about off the top, back to the future, and then another one just to keep him down? And you can say it's egregious, it's greedy, it's over the top, it wasn't needed considering it was just like an avalanche version of his new finisher. So are you already busting it out? But I do enjoy it for the fact that well, Osprey is just getting closer and closer to beating Kushida, and Kushida felt the need that man, he's getting really close to me this time. It might, I might have to do this. So, uh, I think Osprey's performance here is really good. There's some crazy dance spots here. Hmm. Um, Will does a shooting star press to Kushida, who is draped over the top rope, which looks insane. And uh, I think that follows some kind of. He might have done it, the Essex Destroyer on the apron, or might have been a, been a Canadian Destroyer on the apron. I'm not sure what it was. I don't recall either of those. But he hit him with some kind of move on the apron and some crazy, nutty bump. Mm-hmm. Will Ospreay does Kushida's baseball punch, which I really enjoyed. But um, Kushida doesn't look nearly as good for some reason, because he actually hits Osprey in the neck. <laughs> I think he usually does do it in the neck, just to be safe. It, the way they replayed it, it was like neck it was egregious. Not, yeah, yeah, it was like really center of the neck and not that's, like closer up to the jaw. That's not the sort of move you should do on a replay. <laughs> yeah, they should. They replayed it in slow motion too, which made it uh, look even worse. But yeah, I really enjoyed this match. I love the story of Will Osprey getting closer, just 
still not being, being able to beat Kushida. And I didn't like the Kushida redemption story at all. It didn't really, it didn't need to happen this year. Really? Uh, after, after Sakura Genesis? It didn't need to happen. <laughs> all right. Hiromu could have just beat everybody and maybe somebody steps up and gets lucky, but Kushida didn't need to redeem himself after how dominant he's been the last few years. I get you. I get you. He doesn't lose anything. So even if I didn't like that, I thought Kushida's performances in all these matches were stellar. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. I did like how this tied into a match that I did like a lot more in, uh, the eventual Will Ospreay defeating Kushida match at uh, King of Pro Wrestling. Yeah, that match was also very close to making my list. But uh, yeah. what is your uh, 34? Uh, my 34 was the tag match we just talked about. So now we're on to my 33, which is something you've already mentioned on your list. It was uh, quite a bit lower. It's Trevor Lee taking on Chip Day in a promotion that may or may not be imploding before our very eyes. <laughs> CWF Mid Atlantic. Uh, oh, I had that at seventy five. <laughs> okay, uh, sort of. This was a very hyped match. Uh, when very, it was very, very, very hyped. Yeah, when it was first taped towards the end of March, and we found out that it wasn't going to air until a month later. Uh, many of us were very excited to see how this would end up. There were a lot of comparisons to, you know, New Japan epics or uh, classic matches. In oh, the- you know what made it worse? is that I think you said this um, was uh, recorded during the end of March, right? Uh-huh. So, keep in mind, in that time, in the four <laughs> weeks that it happened, oh, yeah. Okada Shibata happened yes. during that time period. That there definitely- was a lot of Okada Shibata comparisons after that, that happened. That plays directly into my perception of this match uh, in good and bad ways. Uh, and you're, you're not wrong to bring that up, really. Um, so, like, I don't know. This match is... is I, I think the reason that it was compared to so many like modern New Japan matches or classic matches in the All Japan Ouvre, um I think I think the reason it was compared to those things is because they sort of do attempt that sort of a match, that sort of like strike heavy, um almost entirely strike based, in fact, uh long form like um battle of uh what's the word I'm looking for? Battle of like conditioning, like two guys just slugging it out and seeing who drops first. Um, and I think they do accomplish that in the end, maybe not as crisply or as effectively as I'd like. But the thing that makes this better for me than a whole lot of you know modern New, New Japan matches is like the emotional core. Uh, at this point, Trevor is over a year into his reign with the CWF Mid Atlantic Heavyweight Championship. Um, and while he's faced a lot of very capable opponents during that time, a lot of very dangerous opponents, he's not faced anyone who's quite as desperate as Chip Day. Uh, Chip Day is someone who is very much an unsung member of the Southern Indie scene, sort of uh, the Indie scene's best kept secret, uh, someone who's never really broken out in the way that Trevor Lee has, uh, especially not at Trevor's age being a very young man who's found a lot of success recently. Um, and so coming into this chip and Trevor are longtime friends, you know, guys who've known each other for a very long time. Uh, and there's a mutual respect, but underneath there, there's, there's a hunger in chip day's eyes and he comes out swinging and Trevor has to, uh, deal with the fact that this is a very dangerous opponent who 
is desperate in a way that he's never had to face before. Uh, even compared to like former champions that he had to go up against or friends of his who wanted to take his belt from him. Um, and watching him deal with that fact over like a 20, what six minute match here and watching chip day come to realize why in fact, Trevor Lee has been CWF champion for over a year, uh, was a really cool thing. Even if like, even if some of their kicks here are wonky or misplaced or kind of weak, um, I think it's a match that's rough around the edges, but the middle section of it, uh, where the rubber meets the road and it has to pull on my heartstrings, I think it manages to do that, uh, in a way that like a whole lot of like high end matches that other people have loved this year didn't. Um, I think you hit on a note here that this is the biggest match Chip Day has ever had at this point, or at least uh-huh. he presented as such. Uh-huh. Going up against this big, formidable champion in a promotion in which he is not a regular, yeah, which does not happen that often in CWF, and that a regular, that a guy that's not a regular is getting this kind of story and build to his title match. And over the course of the match, you hear a crowd that is really mm, not split. Too, you know, like they eventually they get, like almost go fifty fifty or like seventy like seventy thirty for Chip Day. Like they're mm-hmm. super into him. But initially, you're not sure how the crowd's going to react to Chip, who's not a regular in the sportatorium. And uh, you're right; there's a kind of desperation and urgency mm. that Chip Day works here. He needs this victory. Mm. He can't just like lose here. He needs to put himself on the map. He keeps saying he's a South, um, South's best kept secret, but here he's up against the guy that, you know, depending on what you feel about North Carolina and all the, the whole regional thing there, like probably the most well known guy out of the, out of the South right now. Mm-hmm. So here he has a chance to prove it and he comes up short, but he doesn't go, he doesn't go down without a fight. Um, this starts this trend that would happen in, in Trevor title matches with him using that standing guillotine choke. Mm-hmm. Um, after Trevor kick after Chip kicks out of one, I believe out of like a roundhouse kick. I, I forgot what happened, but Chip winds up having this awesome one count, and that goes straight into him getting choked out, and it is great. The crowd pops ridiculously hard for it. Mm. Um, it is a well earned and hard fought victory for Trevor, but Chip Day leaves that match being a made man in the sportatorium. It is a shame that he didn't get brought back more, which is kind of the issue there is that. You have this big moment with Chip, and you would kind of think that since he's won the admiration of the Sportatorium crowd so much, we would see him more on CWF episodes, which I don't think happened. But he he showed up in like one tag match that you and I both enjoyed. Yeah, he was, teamed, was he teamed, that it? He teamed with Trevor to face Royal and Wilkins. I mean, Royal, uh-huh. no, yeah, Royal and Wilkins, and um, I don't think he did much of much anything else after that, which yeah. is like. Kind of nuts for how over he was after that match. Totally. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And maybe if I got the chance to rewatch it before recording mm-hmm. these shows, then it might be higher. Yeah. That was one of those. That was the thing is like, um, uh, notably, this was a match that made me watch CWF uh, live, quote unquote, uh, which means like as it was uploaded to YouTube, uh, which I had never done before that and didn't do for many months afterwards. Um, and when I watched it live, uh, I it, it hit me in a weird way and I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. But when I reviewed it again and came back to it with a more careful eye, uh, it, it really it really did wonders for me. All right. So my number 33 Whew. A match that uh, <laughs> you despise. 
My highest ranked match from Mexico. Uh, oh no. Perez versus Belial versus Impulso from WMC. Okay. You um, take it away. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> he's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> this is a, uh, okay, to lay the, the framework for this, this is a Lucha de Apuestas match, uh, in which it's two to three falls, right? Uh, yes. In which, like, one person leaves the match after securing a fall, and then the remaining two people have to battle it out. Okay, have you ever seen the Negro Casas, El mm. Dandy, Hijo de Santo, um, triple threat Lucha de Apuestas match from 1996? Is it six? I thought it was yeah, 76. Because it's the year before they do, um, the Casa big, Santo. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you've seen, but if you've seen that, then, you get the rules for this. Uh-huh. Um, and like... Uh, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Do you have more to add? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to note that these three guys are uh, teammates in the worst-named stable <laughs> in all of wrestling, Los Indestructibles. 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 So, yes, that is a big part of it, so that these guys God. are... Um, friends. Unit, unit Somehow. Close friends. Um... And like the Casas, um, Dandy, and uh, El, um, El Del Santo triple threat de, um, Lucha de Apuestas match from 1996, this is also very, very bloody and sometimes gross. Sure. Um, to kind of lay out the be- like the structure of this match, pretty much what happened is that throughout the match, two members. Um, of the Indies from Tebas would single out another one and beat them up for an extended period of time. And then this would repeat three times during the match. Um, it gets very bloody and gruesome and kind of disgusting. Um, there's a lot of blood here. Um, considering that these, a lot of these guys, um, do do, um, um Lucha Extrema matches on the side. Uh-huh. I'm not surprised that they would do this, but yeah, there's like- a Let's make. I need to make a note here. Impulso has a match higher ranked on my list than this. Like he, he's a guy who I do like and has a lot of like good hardcore wrestling. Mm-hmm. So this is not out of the element for these guys, but for a triple threat lucha de apuestas match, um, and for just like where they are in general, there aren't a lot of people in the crowd. Mm. They're just murdering and butchering their tag team partners, and I think that's part of the appeal for me is that like. These guys do not want to lose this match so badly that they're willing to maim and hurt and carve up and make bleed their friends. Yeah. It is a very, very cutthroat match. Um, I forgot who gets eliminated, uh, who, not, not, I guess not gets eliminated, but who gets their way out of the match first. Yeah, um, I forget, yeah. Um, and this leaves two Indie Strong T Bliss. And pretty much what happens is that during during the final stretch, I think these two have like a really awesome extended singles match period. What happens is one of them fakes an injury, I believe, and he lures the ref in and makes people feel sympathy for him that he's so hurt and can't move on. And in a moment of you know compassion for his friend that he's been in a war with, um, one of them goes to check on the injured one. And it turns out to be faking the injury. And you buy into the fact that this one who faked it is about to win and steal the victory and save himself and get his other, get his other friend's head shaved. But 
he winds up getting his head shaved and it's very emotional in the fact that like these guys were literally doing it to do anything to make it out of this match without being embarrassed and without losing their hair. Yeah. You know, it gets talked about how important a Lucha de Puesta's match is in Mexico and how big losing your mask is and losing your hair is. And like, obviously like losing your hair is way less big a deal than sure. losing your mask in Mexico. Masks but, don't grow back. <laughs> yeah. But like you watch this match and you almost get the feeling like yeah, the hair doesn't grow back. Mm-hmm. Like you would almost get the feeling that these guys would not be able to replace what got took from them. Mm. In this match, they're willing to give up anything, whether it be friendships, their blood, their honesty, this unit that they made. Any, like they, like they were willing to sacrifice it all to save their hair. It's an incredibly selfish and greedy match, but like that's the appeal of it is that these guys are like self, like destructing and imploding from the inside because they do not want to lose this match that badly. Mm. And I think that's like where all the appeal lies for me. Uh, where the unappeal lies with me is in a couple different things. Uh, one related to what you're saying here specifically, one uh, not so related to that. That's more just a personal note. Um, I love Lucha Libre in no small part due to the fact that it feels like the last bastion of the wrestling world that hasn't been infected by like the greater homogen- uh, homogenization of style. Like it's the last place that, that for the most part, not to say that there aren't examples of this people, people I don't like as much like uh, Phoenix or Volador jr are good examples of this. Uh, but for the most part, like Lucha Libre is still, a lot like it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago to some degree. Uh, it still remains like an inherent quality that is very, uh, Mexican and very, very much built in that, in that culture of machismo. Um, if I would say that like Lucha is like, like, it's like has his hands like clean of like any wrongdoing I'd ever want to say, totally. word, but like Lucha has like been able to remain like pure of like any outside like influence uh, for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, partially just due to a language barrier, partially due to, uh, people not enjoying the style as much as that of like, say Japan or Europe. Um, uh, and so I like it because I can watch a lucha match and it's not going to have the same sorts of dumb moves or spots or themes that I see so often in American wrestling or European wrestling or Japanese wrestling. But this match has all of them. Like, so many, so many, like just um, American centric moves that you don't see very often in Lucha Libre. Uh, just, just the idea of this sort of um, like we're gonna still be friends afterwards, but we're gonna have this very traumatic Lucha de Apuestas match that, like, as you were saying, was so. I don't know. It's it, it's it's so against everything that I know about Lucha Libre to have such a dramatic match type uh, waged between three friends who are going to hug it out afterwards. Uh, maybe, maybe that's sort of hypocritical coming from someone who is very much into deathmatch wrestling. And there's a whole lot of that in deathmatch wrestling. And for the but fact I, that we also have like Thatcher and Walter beat the shit out of each other. Sure. On totally. our list. And then immediately they're spraying each other with cold spray and rubbing mm-hmm. each other's like the knots out of each other's backs. Mm-hmm. But I think I think I think that in a place this match is something above that. That is something special, sort of sacred in some ways. That 
I mean, in some ways, in a place, this match is like the best of wrestling. There's a, uh, tangentially related to the PWO board. There's a greatest match ever poll, uh, beginning up right now. And you and I were talking about it. Like what match is going to come out on top of that? And we were thrown around, uh, we were throwing around a lot of a place. This matches as something that could come out as the greatest match ever. And I think there's a certain gravity to that. And it's a gravity that I don't find here. And I find it instead replaced with a whole bunch of the shenanigans that annoys me about so many other regions and promotions and wrestlers and wrestling. Um, it's, I do, I do want to ask, I, like, on, like, on some level, can you admit that, like, because it was like an indie, mm. um, lucha match? And because sure. it wasn't anything that happened, even something like IWRG, where like IWRG did have a run, but they were very hot, not anymore. But, sure, yeah. So even when Candice Loopies versus Trauma on Primero happens last year, there is mm. some kind of prestige there because you have CMLL, AAA, and then you know, like you have like like other promotions like The Crash and like Lucha Libre Elite that exist, but none of them have the historical cachet that mm. the IWRG once had back in that 2008, 2009 era. Yeah, like the fact that this takes place in uh, Arena San Juan Petitlan as opposed to like Arena Mexico makes it a little easier to swallow. Uh, but like, I don't know. I, I don't want to say something as dramatic as like, I expect more of Lucha Libre. Um, that's what it, like, that's like kind of like the whole thing. Like, you, I think I know. Lucha de Puesa should be above this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I don't want to come across as so high and mighty as that, but like, um, like I got, like I saw this Impulso guy after uh, you recommended me a match, uh, and it ends up really high on my list. And I was like, oh man, I, I got to see more. I got to see more of what this guy's doing. And I saw this match that you also thought very highly of, and it just it let me down in in such a big way, and uh, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, kind of don't want to. Oh, I really want to say something, but it re- but it involves. Go ahead. Um, no, it involves a match. It involves a match you have higher against. Impulso versus Wotan. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the appeal there is that Impulso and Wotan are brothers. Oh. Literally brothers. I did not know that. Yeah. So oh, no. I thought you knew that. They're I literally brothers. <laughs> and they're doing Oops. that to each other. So I thought you knew that. No. Nah. Um, so I was going to ask you, like, so <laughs> <laughs> we have stable mates doing this to each other. How do you feel about brothers literally carving each other up and hitting each other with, like, spiked pineapples and things along well, those lines? Like, hitting each other with weapons, which is, like, the best part of this match, like, them bleeding all over uh, bleeding all over and hitting each other with, like, a bucket or something, right? Yeah. Uh, like, that's the best part of this. I think that's way less egregious and more in line with what I want to see in Lucha Libre than these guys doing a whole bunch of super kicks and elbow drops. Right, I understand, like, the, like, kind of, like... U.S. indie influence aspect that is really bothersome. Yeah. But you did kind of say, like, something about, like, this kind of, like, U.S. like, camminess that you kind of get in matches. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have this match and then we're going to hug it out afterwards. Like, which, to be fair, I also think is kind of a weird point to make when there's so many Apuestas matches where the guys will handshake afterwards. Yes, sure. I don't, it, there's something about this one that it just, it bothers me. I don't get what it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's just the fact that they're, um, they're not like they're not combatants or enemies bonded by like uh the things they did to each other. I think it's the fact that it's three dorks in a stable called Los Indies Trontibles. <laughs> do you like now, one of these guys? <laughs> I do like one of them, but the other two and what they make the third one do that I like, I that's what gets to me. <laughs> All right. Um you said you're thirty three, right? 
Fuck it, I don't remember. I said my 33, yeah. Uh, Alright, so what's your 32? My 32 is a match you brought up earlier, uh, and we're going to talk about it now. It's Asuka defending the NXT Women's Championship against Ember Moon at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 3. Alright, you take it away on this one. Okay. So, after being defeated by dubious means in Orlando, uh, Ember Moon comes into this one all sorts of fired up and ready to fuck Asuka up. And she jumps her right at the bell, takes control for a little while, um, and, and looks to have like a firm, a firm grasp of the match up until the point that they bleed to the floor. And Asuka is able to use the environment to her advantage, uh, tossing Moon into the ring steps and suplexing her onto the entrance ramp, both of which uh, hurt Moon's arm to a significant degree. And Asuka keys in on that, and the whole time she's uh, continuing a theme that we brought up with the Orlando match, in that she's like sort of having fun again after having a whole bunch of defenses against lesser opponents that didn't really push her in any significant way. Uh, and finally, after all these months, she's got someone who can like really bring the best out of her. Uh, and it's a whole lot of fun to see that here, as well as the fact that she's getting to the point where she's like, okay, maybe this person can push me so far that they win. And that's not cool. And so she starts, you know, uh, taking all sorts of shortcuts and applying all sorts of dirty tricks, uh, including, uh, something that she used or at Orlando, which is, uh, manipulating the referee. When Ember Moon goes for her second eclipse of the match, the big, uh, diving stun dog millionaire, um, she drags the referee in the way so that if Ember was to jump, she wouldn't be able to hit the move correctly. So instead, Ember just like cross bodies over the referee in a really cool spot. But, uh, Asuka is able to reverse the momentum and roll up Ember and it has a handful of tights and very nearly wins the match there and then until the referee is able to see the cheating and to stop her. Um, we get some spots back and forth, including like a really gross, uh, super kick, like maybe one of the best super kicks ever. And it looks like it's going to be it for Asuka after, sh- after Ember Moon hits that. Um, and Ember stomps over to where Asuka is laying unconscious on the ground. And we see that she was playing Bossom the whole time. And she traps Ember Moon in a arm bar. Uh, and Ember immediately rolls over, tries to reverse the pressure and put all of her weight on top of Asuka for a pinfall to escape the move, but it just allows Asuka to instead slip into the Asuka lock. And uh, seeing the frustration in Ember's eyes as she's like, fuck, I blew it again, and I did it myself here at the end, uh, was a real heartbreaker. And I like heartbreaking wrestling. That's <laughs> something, something we've brought up a couple different times on this list. Uh, and on top of all that heartbreaking wrestling, there was just a whole lot of good action here. Um, yeah, everything you said here is spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Ember selling of her arm here during this match, but I think you didn't really talk about much, but it was fantastic. Um, yeah, quite good. Yeah, but Asuka, from her arm work to taking every cheap shot possible, every underhanded move and shortcut, she tried, she tried, she tried, but none of it worked. And ultimately, she did have just have to go back to play straight up wrestling. The thing mm-hmm. that she's best at, she had to go and out-wrestle her to get her to tap out. Uh, but you're right. This heartbreaking end to Ember after we finally got some emotion out of her in mm-hmm. Orlando. Um, we get back to Brooklyn, and she... This is like... Prob- like I really like the Orlando match, but because of what happens um, with that tag match, 
it kind of gets mm-hmm. overshadowed. Like, but this was the first time in a while where they were, well, I think the women were given, like, win a position to have the best match on the show. Totally. And there's like, and, and, and I should note, uh, if not for the fact that Oni Lorcan went on a fucking tear this year, this would be my highest ranked NXT match of the year for the third year in the row. The, the, uh, the Brooklyn women's title match would be. Yeah. Um, so something obviously special there when those um, women go out there and work. But yeah, I love everything about this match and I love the standing ovation that Ember Moon gets after mm. very well earned. Um, the term like star maker gets used a lot, but like, Ember Moon came out of that match like everyone was feeling, man, when Ember Moon eventually beats Asuka, that's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Eventually, that doesn't get to happen because uh, whether that injury was real or not, I still have no mm-hmm. clue. But Asuka <laughs> winds up, I have no clue. I'm just not paying attention to it. Sure. Um, Asuka winds up dropping the NXT belt um, and vacating it rather than losing it to somebody. And Ember wins it in a four-way rather than beating the woman that had beat her twice for the belt. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's a cool moment when Ember wins anyway because it's in Houston. She's from Texas. So, like, all of that is fine. Yeah. But it would have just been a lot better if we got that moment with her beating Asuka one-on-one after coming up short. Do you think, though, it would have been um, – do you think it would have taken away from the Asuka character if she did finally lose? That's what you build a, build a character like that up for. You build sure. someone up like that that strongly, so eventually someone can beat them, and they come across like an even mm. bigger deal. That's just how wrestling works. That's how you create a star, and then you use someone else's star power and star aura, and all the goodwill and credibility that, credibility that you've instilled in them to make somebody else, because that person isn't going to be around forever. And if you do keep them around forever, there's a good chance business goes down by keeping, keeping them on top too long especially in this modern wrestling landscape. So mm. that's just how wrestling works. And I felt like it would have been perfect for Ember Moon to beat Asuka and then Asuka goes up to do whatever she does in the main roster. Mm. But, you know, either they just didn't want Asuka to lose the belt. Asuka was her. I'd have no fucking clue because I stopped being such a bad story. Sure. But, uh, I really wish she did beat Asuka for that belt. And I have a good feeling if that did happen, it might even be higher than this match is um, totally. on your list. But I'm, uh, all right. My number 32 is a match that I know you'll have higher than me, but it is Matt Tremont versus Nick Gage from the Tournament of Survival. Yeah, I have this a little bit higher. We're going to talk about it on the next episode. And instead, we'll talk about a match that you unfairly maligned, I believe, on our first episode of the series. My 31 being Roman Reigns versus Braun Strowman in a last man standing match on Raw from uh, August the 7th. I like the like action of this match. Just the finish oh. is like... <laughs> Alright. Um, so, not infrequently, uh, like if you ever read my blog at all, Brock Hates Wrestling over on WordPress.com, uh, you'll probably know that uh, I find uh, Roman Reigns' babyface selling, especially like in an underdog environment, such as his matches with Braun Strowman, I find it to be very artificial and cloying. Um, sometimes I feel he's a little too serious. Sometimes I feel he's very uh, unserious. Uh, he's taking things too jokingly. Um, but I think this match was the best match suited for his skill set and for this 
entire feud. Uh, not just because it's a last man standing match, but because of how it plays into what later happens at, uh, SummerSlam. Um, so as I have mentioned a couple times, cause I've, this is like the third last man standing match I've had on my list now. It? Um, it is. Yeah. I love oh, the gimmick. Do you, dude. Do, you an, do, you, do you have another one after this too? No, this is the highest one. Huh? Yeah. Um, so you didn't have Oscar versus Nikki Cross on your list. Mm, nope. Wow. Okay. Fun, right. fun, fun match, but like it didn't make, oh, no, I, it, I didn't it's like, on my top 200. So oh, yeah, I didn't like it nearly as much as other people did, but I yeah. thought you loved that match. So I, was, I was shocked, but all right. Nah, nah, it's just a fun little plunder brawl thing. Um, but here, uh, you make good use of Roman Reigns and Braun Strowman, two big heavyweight guys who have very explosive arsenals, who have a lot of bombs in their arsenals. Uh, and in a last man standing match, they don't have to kick out a whole, out of a whole bunch of those things. They can just sell around for those for a long time. Uh, it also gives them the opportunity to sell a lot. And while I don't like they're selling so much all the time, when they have a match specifically built around it and they're forced to do it well, I think they do it pretty well. Uh, this match is also... Uh, the thing best suited for WWE's really annoying, like, oh my god, can Roman overcome the beast or whatever? For some reason, WWE can never pull off a bad last man standing match. Like, they, mm-hmm. they just can, for all, I think bad, it's, for all the bad cage matches and, like, yeah. underwhelming ladder matches and whatever the hell, like, they can just not do a bad last man standing match. I think it's a foolproof sort of matchup. It's, it's a thing that really smooths out a lot of the wrinkles of like lesser performers. Um, and, are, and it's just a good, it's a good gimmick match. Like there's, there's stuff used here, like steel steps or uh, an office chair, notably <laughs> that are used in other hardcore matches, but are used very well here because like they're big bombs that give uh, that are given the time to breathe and given the time to feel effective. Like they do, um, I think Roman smashes Braun into the LED lights up on the stage at one point. Uh, and it looks kind of shitty just because they're real flimsy LEDs. But like, uh, that's a spot that I usually dislike. And it comes across great here because like they give a lot of time to, to, to see the fallout of the whole thing happening. Uh, at one point, Braun Strowman launches a big fluffy office chair at Roman <laughs> yes, he Roman Reigns' head, and it's incredible. Maybe one of the best spots of the year. Probably number two behind the corner dive in John Skyler versus Corey Hollis. Um, the finish, uh, which you don't like, and I understand why, sees Roman Reigns sprint down the entire entrance ramp to hit one hell of a spear on a Braun Strowman uh, at ringside. And as he's selling and getting up to break or to, uh, to stand on his feet for the finish, uh, Samoa Joe comes out from the crowd and slaps a Kikina clutch onto Roman Reigns and debilitates him for long enough that Braun Strowman is instead able to get to his feet for the 10 count. And Roman Reigns is counted down for the finish. Uh, again, I get why, it may, I get why it works. I get that it plays into like eventually uh-huh. um, the SummerSlam match, as but, well as just like the, the the mini matches those three had already had throughout the summer. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really a fan of like the Roman Reigns and Mojo stuff at sure. first. I didn't think they were really had, they just funny enough they just had a really good match. <laughs> they um, did <laughs> on Raw um, on the on January first. Yeah, but um, yeah, I wasn't really a fan of them at the in, in the moment. Uh, but yeah, I think. Everything you said here about the action in the match is mm-hmm. spot on with like the second awesome 
Um, last man standing match Braun Strowman had during that year, <laughs> like, which I would not be opposed to that becoming his gimmick match. Totally. You know, some guys have like a specialty match, and if you made that Braun Strowman thing, I would not be mad at it. I'm behind it. And so yeah, I just I like all the wrestling part of the match. I just did not think the finish um, was very helpful to anybody. <laughs> Just it, it was inconclusive, and it's like, oh, a guy who, uh, a guy who's not even in the match comes out looking the strongest. Yeah, like Roman Reigns loses again, but like it's not like the other one where Braun Strowman kind of outsmarts him. Mm, sure, or, yeah. Or where Braun Strowman just is better than him on that night or outpowers him. Like, yeah, Braun Strowman just kind of like looks into it. <laughs> I get that. That's that's a that's a totally valid criticism. All right, so we're at the last match. Oh, boy. On this episode. So <laughs> I want you to say your 31 first. Oh, that was my 31. Oh, was your 31? Yeah. Oh, all right. Um, my number 31 is Matt Riddle versus Trent Seven from Progress Chapter 49, Ooh. Super Strong Style 16, Day 1. Interesting. This has been built up, uh, referenced a couple times throughout the, the the three episodes we've done now. Uh, Eagle-eared? Listeners will will uh, will have recognized it by this point. Um, something that I liked a lot. Wouldn't dare to think about putting it on a list like this, but uh, sell me on it, Quentin. I get the fact that it is a seven second mm-hmm. match or six second match. No, it's um, six. Yeah, yeah, six second match. Um, and I understand that to a lot of people, if something goes that short, then it then turns into angle territory. But I think when the promo that Trent Seven cuts before the match is that good, I think his entire um, introductory stuff with putting in a mouthpiece before <laughs> the match starts is so good. I think his serious demeanor and how much he buys into his own shit is so mm-hmm. good. How he gets on the microphone and he's talking about how Matt Riddle wants to retire Brock Lesnar. He's talking about how him and Brock Lesnar are actually colleagues. And how Brock Lesnar personally told him um, that Matt Riddle wasn't worthy. Um, Calling Matt Riddle a whole bunch of uh, insulting and offensive things. Getting Matt Riddle more angsty, riled up, and angry. As if you needed to piss off an ex-UFC fighter even more than he already is, and make him want to knock you out. And the fact that Trent Seven cuts this promo like he believes every single word of it. Hmm. He believes every single thing he's about to say. He believes the fact that he is going to avenge his loss from WrestleMania weekend to Matt Riddle. Um, on top of this, this, is, this actually goes on last on a Super mm-hmm. Strong Style 16 Day 1 show. So after a show with a whole bunch of good, very good... Um, a couple very of young- Emotional matches. Uh, emotional too. matches. Um, this goes on last. And honestly, a lot of people that watch progress and like kind of like thought about bra- brackets for this tournament were like, Matt Riddle versus Trent Seven, a rematch from WrestleMania weekend. Matt Riddle already beat Trent. Mm-hmm. Matt Riddle Trent's going to get his win back. Uh huh. Trent's going to get his win back. Yeah. And then you see a position as a main event, like, oh, maybe some British strong, strong style chicanery. Maybe they cheat Matt Riddle out of a win. Nope. Ring the bell. Flying knee. It's over. And again, all of this sounds more like an angle. Mm-hmm. Why I say it's more a match is one, this is the first time Matt Riddle uses the bicycle knee as a finish. 
Hmm. And this is like a thing with Matt Riddle where he's experimented with a lot of things as his finisher, but that bicycle knee in the way Trent Seven sold it was beautiful. <laughs> uh, and obviously there's more credibility when Riddle throws a knee with the whole ex-UFC fighter thing. You buy it more than yeah. um, Kenny Omega, Kento Miyahara, Kanesuke Takashita, all these guys that do bicycle knees, um, so many indie guys that do it. You buy it more with Matt Riddle because he has that background. So Trent Seven got himself into this position where this UFC fighter that has never done this to anybody other than like mm-hmm. Bobby Guns kind of like mauling him at the start of a match, but like you, no one has ever pissed Matt Riddle off this much. And Matt Riddle just goes in there and knocks his head off. And Trent Seven, after he gets knocked out, just sells this, lays there and sells like he just genuinely got knocked out and the crowd erupts in surprise and jubilation and excitement and it's a real great like this this couldn't happen to anybody else because mm. Trent Seven is who he is because Trent Seven is this character because because Trent Seven is the funny man um <laughs> who often tries to get into situations um way bigger than his britches and he winds up paying for it. It only like this seven. Yeah, this wouldn't work with any of the other heels in progress. You couldn't do this with Zach Gibson. You couldn't do this with uh, James Drake. You couldn't do this with certainly either of the other members of BSS. Nope. And then like, um, Jim Smallman, uh, who Trent Seven was antagonizing during the in, in, um, in ring ring um, ring introductions, uh, disrespecting him, and this mm-hmm. whole to plays into the whole British strong style disrespecting progress in their title belt story. And Jim Smallman sounds was so excited and happy to say it <laughs> when he says, winner via knocking Trent Seven the fuck out, <laughs> Matt Riddle. And the commentary is perfect for it. The crowd reaction is perfect. I don't think you could do anything like this as well as they did. And it only goes six seconds. And I understand all of it. But the selling, the execution, the promo, the... uh a fucking announcement of the winner. Mm. All that is so well done. On top of the fact that the next, um, uh, the third day, Matt mm. Riddle then goes on to face Tyler Bate. You know, so you do have the fact that Matt Riddle went and knocked out Tyler Bate's tag team partner on the first day of the show. <laughs> um, there's also plays into the fact that Trent Seven spent the whole weekend after this being dejected and embarrassed. And there's, um, being called Trent Six and their size in the crowd with just the number six on it and all this shit talking Trent Seven did um, for months and months and months with this new British Strong style heel turn mm-hmm. has come back to bite him and he can't say anything. He has nothing to say because he got embarrassed. He got his ass handed to him mm-hmm. and it is fucking awesome. And honestly, Trent Seven was the MVP of Super Strong Style Weekend. Like his performances. <laughs> Just watching him sell and embrace this character that got embarrassed and is sort of a joke. Yeah. Like, that just works. And I don't think I've ever seen anything in this short amount of time be so effective and kind of set up the rest of the year for Trent Seven. Mm. Where now you want to watch Trent Seven get his ass handed to him. You want to see him cut this promo and then get his ass beat, as opposed to like Zach Gibson cutting his promo, getting his heat, and then yeah. controlling a match. You're like Trent Seven, 
you're going to talk, you're going to get your ass kicked, you're going to get hit with a knee in a reference to that match, and it's going to be awesome every single time. This happened over the course of the weekend where mm-hmm. Mark Haskins hit him with a flying knee, um, I believe Flash what I think. I think Haskins like rolled him up into a sharpshooter and was going to make him tap in six seconds. Mm-hmm. And they and they they do a fake out there where where it really looks like seven's going to tap in in six seconds, and then he flips off the crowd as soon as it gets to seven. And it's <laughs> and it's just like he really was. Yeah, you're right. He was like the best guy that weekend. Yeah. So like, I understand a lot of people don't like Trent Seven. I understand a lot of people like he's like the most like least impressive member of that group, and I get it. Like, sure, he's. he's Team with a like two like young phenomenons for Christ's sake, but like yeah. this guy who like knows his role, who knows his place, who just understands professional wrestling, mm. going out there and just doing what needed to be done to make that weekend as awesome as impactful as it was, totally. just resonated with me a lot. And I understand that it resonates with me way more than so many people, but it was one of my favorite things to watch in all of 2017. Like, yeah, like I can't, I can't look at you sideways for having this patch on your list. When I, when I, you know, waxed poetic about, uh, Kushida and Hiromu Takahashi having a two minute match that accomplishes a lot of the same goals here. Like it's, it's really, it's great professional wrestling. Yeah. That's what it like, it's core to me, like regardless of length, like to me, this is professional wrestling. This is like mm-hmm. making the most of your time, making people care, setting seeds up for things that happen later on, whether it be in a tournament or, or other progress shows after this, or setting up what will be the character in a trope where Trent seven matches. Like mm-hmm. this sets up stuff. And that's what you're kind of supposed to get in professional wrestling. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad I finally got to talk about it. So, now we can wrap this show up. The longest Ooh. one yet. Yep. Uh, Most eventful one yet. <laughs> um, hopefully Gosh. nothing crazy happens during part four because that's already going to go long enough. Yeah. And if some crazy uh, news about WXW hits, then Vince will die. <laughs> that's what will happen. Um, all right. Brock, do you want to say your Twitter yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, not Brock Yonke. That's spelled N O T B R O C K J A H N K E. I referenced it earlier. You can also find some of my work on WordPress at BrockHatesWrestling dot com. That's my uh, that's my uh, blog for individual match reviews. I've started to do some more full show reviews, and I'm going to start doing some older wrestling reviews as well. All right, and you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. <sighs> Part four, we're on our way. It's coming. Thank you all for listening. See you all next time. Is it solid ground? Don't make sense. Too many more. Trying to figure it out.